Howdy, Tonzilla Files. Welcome to the Escaping the Cave podcast, the Tonzilla X-Pod. Google Play also on iTunes, and you can check me out over at uh, the ChristopherMedia.net network. He's back. I was supposed to be here a week ago, wasn't I? Well, let me apologize for that. Been a trying time. Moved from Massachusetts back to Michigan. Spent a week in Massachusetts and uh, just got back here into the Great Lakes State about uh, almost a week ago. And I, I do believe there are some folks here in the Lower Peninsula who could really use your thoughts and prayers at this most most difficult of times. Anyway, this is the first of three episodes that I have recorded with Friar Chris. If you're a longtime Toddzillophile, you obviously know who Chris Dyson is. He, uh, he's been a significant player in a lot of the things that I've done over the last 10 years or so. We did a lot of backpacking and hitchhiking in uh, 2008, 2009, and parts of 2011 down in Mexico. I used his place as sort of a base camp my first year out uh, hitchhiking in 2008. And he has spent the last six years, up until the end of January, actually, down in Peru, on and off, mostly on, running a hostel and a an NGO dealing with permaculture and uh, sustainability, leadership courses, all sorts of things. It's really been an interesting time for him. And this first episode, we will go into a lot of that. We're going to talk about how he got down there. We're also going to talk about some of the things that happened, some of the challenges that he faced being a gringo, being an expat, trying to integrate not only into Peruvian society, but also into Quechuan society, the community, nearby community, that really honestly didn't want him there all that much. We get into that a lot in this episode. The multiple robberies he endured at this hostel, 12,000 feet up in the rural part of the Andes Mountains, and how he dealt with that. We'll get into tribalism a little bit. Also, the disconnect that uh, we're facing as a species as we try to deal with new technology and how to sort of maintain that connectivity with each other. Tribalism. It wanders on a little bit. It goes off in tangents, but it's uh, it's a good, interesting episode and really gets into a lot of the, the challenges, the difficulties, and also the good things that Chris faced while he was living down in the Andes Mountains in Peru. This one's a little echoey. The bedroom was empty, <laughs> so <laughs> sound quality may be a little weird. Uh, we got that fixed with the second one, and, and we recorded the third one here in the studio in Kalamazoo. The second and third ones are more domestic-based. The second one's going to focus on Chris's walk across the country that he took from 2003-2004, and the last one basically is both he and I talking about the hitchhiking experiences and the people we met, the insights, the lessons we learned, the you know uh, what we took out of uh, thumbing around the United States eight or nine years ago. So all of these are interesting in their own way. The first one, as I said, focuses on Chris's experience in Peru, how he got there and all that good stuff. And uh, it's quite interesting and uh, pretty insightful, I think. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Oh, and before we start, this first part is almost all the politics you're going to get from these episodes. You're welcome. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Zilla X-Pod. I was toting my pack along the dusty Winnemucca Road. When along came a semi with a high-end canvas-covered load If you're going to win a muckamack with me, you can ride And so I climbed into the cab and then I settled down inside He asked me if I'd seen a road with so much dust and sand And I said, listen, 
I've traveled every road in this here land I've been everywhere, man I've been everywhere, man Across the deserts, bare man I breathe the mountain air, man I travel, I've had my share, man I've been everywhere I've been to Pittsburgh, Parkersburg, Gravelburg, Colorado, Ellensburg, Rexburg, Vicksburg, Eldorado, Laramore, Atmore, Havistal, Chattanooga, Chaston, Nebraska, Alaska, Opelika, Baraboo, Waterloo, Kalamazoo, Kansas City, Sioux City, Cedar City, Dodge City, what a pity. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been everywhere. And welcome to episode number five of the Toddzilla X-Pod, Escaping the Cave, iTunes, Google Play, and also the uh, Christopher Media Network. I'm your friendly and uh, congenial host, Todd, joined in studio, in studio, in bedroom. <laughs> in uh, Westminster's basement. Yeah. <laughs> Westminster, Massachusetts, uh, back here for... Uh, I guess about a week packing things up, the apartment and all that, and my buddy Chris, the friar. Hello. Chris Dyson, back in country for, what, two weeks now? Uh, yeah. Yeah. A little over. Yeah, and a uh, hell of an experience uh, getting yourself out of Peru. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, the fall of Saigon. Yeah, right. But, uh, yeah, he's been back here about two weeks, and uh, we decided to sit down today and uh, begin, I think, what's going to be... An expansive conversation is probably going to span more than one episode, I would think. I like the racy music that just kicked in. You like that, huh? <laughs> it's my now, old, what, now what are we talking about? Yeah, it's from my old porn career. I figured I'd... Uh, I thought we were talking about my old career. We can talk about that a little bit. <laughs> one issue at a time. So anyway, I, I, uh, I, we were just sitting down to record and uh, trying to figure out what we are going to do here. I got a text uh, from a guy, lawyer friend of mine. Out in California, I don't need to don't need to mention his name, but he was uh, taking some issues with some comments I made. I think of the the media episode number three about the uh, Me Too movement. I compared it to uh, McCarthyism. I compared it to a little bit to the uh, Salem witch trials, simply because in this day and age, you don't need to offer anybody any proof, especially with the, the Me Too movement in regards to sexual harassment. You can just accuse them. I could I could accuse you, Chris, of sexual harassment today, and if you were a media figure. Uh, you'd pretty much be tarred, feathered, and uh, thrown out of your out of your industry. Actually, I have a relevant point on that. Is is um, there's some family history in there of my family where that that happened. The person accused was a middle school teacher mm-hmm. accused by his own daughter of um, abuse as a kid, and actually that fortunately ended up okay. Uh, where, but there was, he was a religious leader. He is a pillar of the community kind of guy, very involved with a lot of his students' lives, would address abuse cases in those lives of the students. And, you know, out of nowhere, you get this accusation of, uh, of sexual abuse. Right. And it was all coming out of psychologists analyzing this, this girl who was having a lot of mental problems. So it wasn't even really from her. So much. Not really. No. I mean, she agreed with it because, you know, she's just kind of fucked up 16-year-old teenage girl who's going through all kinds of issues. And um, the psychologists and the experts that be were taking, like, dreams and weird shit like that and, you know, like, their analysis of her and decided that this had happened and started an investigation and I was asked to leave the house. And um, uh, I refused and wasn't taken out of the house and I never saw anything more on that end. But but in the end... Um, 
nobody believes that it happened and and nothing happened to his career so I guess it's not really an appropriate example because well there it, it is because the accusation was leveled without really any concrete proof of anything. I mean, he still had to endure this, and it's not on, obviously on the scale of a Kevin Spacey or whoever else. I mean, Kevin Spacey is a bad example there because he obviously admitted to it. But there's still no proof required these days to saddle someone with that sort of reputation and potentially threaten their career. And it's a direct comparison in my head anyway. And this. Incidentally, kids, is not going to be a political episode. <laughs> we're getting that's, this. Sh- that's where I was confused. Yeah, we're going to get this shit out of the way uh, uh, real quick. And it's only the only reason we're mentioning this is because it happened. Just literally, we were sitting down to start this, and my phone ding, and I uh, got into this whole thing. So I just want to kind of address this basically to clear my head a little bit. But it, it seems to me that the parallels. Uh, between McCarthyism, the Salem witch trials, all you need is an accusation. We're not burning people at the stake anymore, but we're burning people's careers at the stake at this point without the without a burden of proof. You can't these right. accus, these aren't things. Maybe they were. You know, I'm not saying none of this stuff happened. Obviously, but there has to be, uh, in my head anyway, some level of a burden of proof in order to destroy someone's life. I mean, inevitably, what's going to happen, and it happened with McCarthyism in the 50s, false accusations come out, and somebody's life is fucking destroyed because somebody has an axe to grind, doesn't like someone. All they have to do, all they had to do in the 50s was say, commie, and no, I that's that. I definitely agree with that. And it's funny because we sat down and Chris is like, I didn't know we were doing politics. You sure you want to do that? And you're right. I don't want to, but it's fucked up that this is... If if you're defending the burden of proof, the rule of law that we sort of, you know, based our legal system on, <laughs> we're not Syria after all, right? It's funny that that has become a politically charged stance. But think about what is a politically charged stance these days. We're arguing about climate change, which has a bunch of science behind it and is visible. We're arguing about whether or not you need burden of proof like this, what you're talking about. We're arguing about, I mean, like all kinds of things like these where, I don't know, 20 years ago, I want to say, maybe not. It would just be ridiculous. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, everything has become politicized to the point where you can't even defend someone's right, you know, to face their accuser and have their accuser actually bring a burden of proof to the table before their life's destroyed. And that makes me, according to him, he actually uh, uh, typed into his, one of his messages that I was taking the tea party stance on. He called me a teabagger. <laughs> Where's the proof? Oh, teabagger. Is that where we're at? It's disturbing to me. And I, I think this all ties into, uh, you know, I, obviously, I don't think you've listened to uh, the last uh, episode that I put out, but it started to get, and we'll get into this later on, the uh, the whole Coyote thing, and, 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 and trying to base your observations on something more than your ideology, your doctrine, theology. Trying to get to the point where you're actually seeing what's in front of you so you can start a basis of conversation, <laughs> you know, that's, and I think this ties beautifully into it because I think he read into coming from a pro me too stance. He's heavily entrenched in that. And me saying, well, where's the proof to him from his perspective, the filter that he's hearing it through makes me an adversary. I think I think the the conversations that happen these days are coming from an assumption that you're in one camp or another. Yeah, and I think that's yeah, and I think that's where the leap comes from. Of if you question something that's outside of their own camp, then you're in the other camp, or you're in the extreme camp that's opposite your own. Yeah, if you're not in the tribe, you're the Auslander. Yeah, 
and you need to have poo thrown at you. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Enough of the Me Too stuff. Uh, there's a school shooting this week. Not going to go into that too much other than shut the fuck up about the gun debate. It's done. I went into this a couple episodes ago. You're not going to get rid of guns, liberals. You can't do it unless you're going to send your kids over to take these guys. You know, my buddy Chad. You know, I think you met Chad, actually. But yeah, you know, I think you met him in 09 when we were back in Michigan. And he's a big gun guy. He's got all sorts of, of firearms strewn throughout his house. And I keep saying... You know, all right, liberals, you want to take guns away. Who are you going to send over to Chad's house to take his guns away? He doesn't want to give them to you. You're going to send your kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to send them over to Corey's house? Probably not, right? So who's going to do it? Whose kids are you going to send to go disarm uh, and take 350 million guns away from people in the country that don't want to give them up? Well, in the arguments that I hear at least being batted around on the radio and on the yeah. news of everything of why we need gun control, you have a school shooting like this. Or you got the guy in Vegas or you got Columbine or whatever. And automatically people are chiming in that they need to get rid of the guns. And it's, okay, then we're just going to have a bunch of school knifings. And sure, not as yep. many people will die. You know, I mean, it's just, it's it's not the guns that the issue is. It's the, it's the disconnect and it's the detachment that I think the people who are committing these things, they're, they're detached. There's something going on. I mean, it'd be, Mm -hmm. it'd be good to go through and analyze the, the biographies of everybody who's done these and what it was. I mean, like I got really, so Columbine was on my 23rd birthday. Right. Right. And I identified strongly with those kids, not that I was in favor of Columbine, but I identified that those were the kids that I was hanging out with in high school. Mm -hmm. Like that was my crowd. Right. Right. I have writing from high school of when I got long-term detention or something like that. And I have a whole like three pages that now would get me in federal prison if I were a student. Right. That was all about destroying my school, blowing it up, poisoning everybody. I don't know. Yeah. Right. I was angry. Yeah. And yeah, I wasn't going to do it, but there's a psychology behind that that isn't getting addressed. It's being filtered into an anti gun campaign. Right. No one's being addressed. No one's being heard. Mm-hmm. Therefore, nothing's being done about it. And so, of course, we're going to have more. The thing that gets me about this, and I, I, you know, I'm not, I know I'm not alone when I say this, and I've, I've seen and heard people say pretty much the same thing. We gotten desensitized to all this. It's like it's like a rerun every other week. You know, there's 17 people dead now in this school in uh, Florida, and people aren't shocked by it anymore. It's like, oh, it's another yeah. one. It's terrible, but yeah, yeah there it is again. And it's it, the thing that gets me is that when you go. I guess on social media, the arguments are always the same. You're having, I mean, it's like same shit, different shooting every time. That's kind of where I was uh, trying to go with, with this because we're obviously not going to have a gun control conversation here. It's, it's it's ridiculous and it's redundant, but you're not going to take guns away from people that many guns from that many people when it's entrenched. It is in the second amendment, like it or not, it's there. But the, the horse shit argument on the other side from the gun nutters that sort of see the Second Amendment as divine scripture that can't be defiled. And they're ignoring. The Founding Fathers didn't take a shit without considering what line was going to go where, right? And the very first thing that they put in the, in the Second Amendment to the Constitution was a well-regulated militia being part of a national defense, or, or there's something down that line. I don't have it in front of me again. And these gun guys... You look at them and they say, Second Amendment shall not be I don't infringed. To what saying. Yeah, shall not be infringed. But they ignore the very first line. So you look at them and you say, oh, really? Well, what, what uh, well-regulated militia are you a part of? <laughs> oh. Well, it's funny. You think about the, um, 
the camp argument that we we're or the camp point that we were saying before of like you Tribalism. make an argument yeah and they assume you're on it so i guess right. for our listeners um <laughs> i guess i should also point out that i'm kind of i don't know i don't like describing myself as a pacifist but i guess that's what i am i don't own a gun i have no desire to ever own a gun i am um, yeah. todd even asked me one time what i would do if somebody punched me in the face and i honestly don't know mm-hmm. and i was robbed uh several months ago in peru in a remote location in a foreign country with three guys in my in my house Mm -hmm. with uh, pistols in my face and i had nine other guests there and uh and i'm very happy that i didn't have a gun then Mm -hmm. because then i they would have had an extra one Right, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and when I was hitchhiking cross country or walking cross country and everyone kept telling me, oh, you should have a gun, you should have a right, knife, you yeah. should have something. I don't know. I subscribed to uh, Empire Strikes Back when uh, when Yoda, when uh, was it Luke asks Yoda what's in the cave and he says only what you bring with you. Right. And uh, and he brings the uh, the lightsaber in and then he faces the Vader with the lightsaber in there. But I think, yeah, you you the energy that you bring with you, I carry a gun. I'm going to either, I'm going to arm the guy who's robbing me because I don't know how to use it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or, or, or it's going to attract, you know, like an energy, a vibe or something. The vibe that, yeah. yeah, Of the, of that kind of violent energy. Yeah. And me, my best weapon I've always known is my being able to talk. Yeah. Which, you know, sucked in peru when my spanish isn't so good but i still managed to pull it off in the robbery got me through my dental appointments i appreciate that (laughs) right no but in peru when the robbery was going on it was like um those guys were terrified uh they had a really frightened look in their eyes those guys the robbers you mean the robbers yeah Yeah. for whatever reason i was really calm and really level-headed throughout the whole thing and my fucked up spanish was was sufficient to to keep it all on a calm level. Right. I mean, we had four really attractive women there that I was worried about rape. I was worried mm-hmm. about people being beaten. Uh, we did have uh, my friend Julia ended up with a broken rib uh, because she screamed as soon as they opened the door and they kicked her repeatedly in the ribs. Yeah. Uh, another guest couldn't get out of her tent fast enough, so they hit her in the head with the butt of a gun. But that was it. Other than, well, and they poisoned the dog. But that's more tradition over there rather than uh, actual act of aggressive malice against us it was just i don't know kill the dog and get it out of the way that's just weird yeah i don't know i know i know it's a cultural difference yeah well i don't know maybe they do it here too i haven't been robbed here yet no i have and no the dog dog was fine afterwards well we got robbed in chicago they didn't poison the cats so well they didn't poison my cats either yeah but my cats cats are smart enough to get out of there (laughs) full disclosure I, i think for you is that I did talk about the robbery in, uh, I think, the first episode back. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the pacifism because that's, that's that was the angle that I was taking with it, was that uh, when I first found out about it, the robbery happened August? August 4th. Yeah, yeah first week of August. And it was <laughs> right about that time that uh, was shortly thereafter the uh, Charlottesville thing hit with the skinheads down there. And I had this this thought in my head because they happened. I mean, almost immediately one like with you, and then and then the Charlottesville thing. And it, the thought that kept going through my head was lambs to wolves. Well, you are a pacifist. I mean, I, I don't say that disparagingly. We've had that conversation before. And I kept thinking to myself that without uh, the ability to defend yourself in a situation like that, 
in that setting, you're pretty much, your safety it was at the pleasure of predators. And I, I was trying to come to terms with that and how you would handle that moving forward. If you're going to stay there and you're going to uh, be a viable operation in that setting, in that rural setting on that mountain, what's going to stop people from just coming by and preying on you? And not, I'm not saying any of this is fair, <laughs> but that was where... That it was is where, fair. That it's was, entirely fair. Yeah. But there, I think there's an answer to it. It's just not a very good one. It's theoretical. What I thought when I, when I, when I was in that situation mm-hmm. and I'm looking at these guys and I'm seeing the fear in their eyes, yeah. you can recognize easily that they don't want to be there either. Right. Right. They're there out of necessity. One guy you said was... Uh, there was him. one enthusiastic guy who yeah. was really big and he had a rock bar. I noticed that they did not give him a gun. Right? He had a rock bar. The enthusiastic guy, they just gave him the, the club. The basically. bar. Yeah. yeah, probably because they, re- they didn't want to kill anybody. Yeah. And they and, didn't you know, want him killing anybody. In fact, they, yeah, I think yeah. that was why he didn't have a gun. That's interesting. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But what I, the whole thing running through my head at the time, so up in Peru, I don't know if, ever, if you've prefaced this already, but what we do is we, we run programs out of there. And um, mostly it's just sustainability. We do community, community leadership courses with... Um, with American kids who come down. Mm. Um, but we do work in the village with that. And anyways, what was running through my head was we need to focus more now on job creation in the village. Because if I can focus on job creation, if I can create jobs and help boost an economy in a poor village like that, where they're turning to robbing each other, less people are going to need to turn to robbing people, right? right. And, and you have to make it profitable enough so that you're making at least comparable, if not better money than what you can get by robbing people. Yeah. Because you got to weigh in the risk as well mm-hmm. of being caught, which I don't think he could be caught because it, those guys I'm pretty sure were police. Yeah. Um, that, either that or the police were involved because the guns that they had were definitely police issue. That I did get into. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the risk is not very high on getting caught. Right. But they don't want to be doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, from what I saw, at least just, just the, just seeing their reactions, the way they handled things, the weird questions they're asking, like, what do you do for a living? And <laughs> one guy actually even apologized to us profusely while we were tied up in the, in the house altogether. And mm-hmm. he had a gun on us. You know, he finds out that we're working with the little kids and we're not some gringo mountaineering lodge. And he starts saying, oh, mil disculpas, mil disculpas. And I was like, okay, fuck off. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think ingraining yourself in the community is your protection Mm -hmm. and that's of course doubly hard for me because i'm i'm never going to be able to ingrate well i'd be highly highly skeptical that i would ever be able to ingrain myself into that community right in a way that was beyond just being a resource you know i might be somebody's friend i might be you know your gringo santa on the hill yeah and and i was straight up told that you know by by friends of mine yeah um who I genuinely think are friends of mine, but mm-hmm. they're being straight up with me. <laughs> yeah, no, that kind of honesty is rare. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you become an asset to the community mm-hmm. where people respect you for, for looking out for them, mm-hmm. then you have that protection. Right. And you're never going to have complete protection. You don't have that here. You don't have that anywhere. Well, you have recourse here. You know, you, you can actually, Maybe, yeah. well, come on. There's a far better chance of recourse here. Yeah, be fair about it. I mean, if you went to the police, you could, you could actually, we've talked about this. You, you know, if you were up in Vermont and that happened to you there, you wouldn't have second thoughts about going to the police. No, 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 no. I'm wondering yeah. if they were involved in no, it. No, and I'm not saying like if I got robbed here, the police wouldn't do anything. That's not true. 
um, that is one of the benefits of me returning here to the States is yeah. that I do feel like I have recourse. I do feel like I have a place, a police force that I can go to right. that will put effort into finding somebody, mm-hmm. you know. Not to mention understanding the culture, the language, the customs. <laughs> well, there's all the rest of that. But <laughs> yeah, just security-wise, right. I yeah. feel like I know what's going on here more. I mean, I also feel more comfortable with the criminal element here. Right. I feel like I know where it's coming from. I yeah. feel like I, you know, I've been involved with some of it, so I yeah, know right. how they work, too. Yeah. So I feel protection just in the understanding. Yeah. Whereas down there, I get it in a Hollywood sort of way. You know, mm-hmm. I understand I understand that the police are corrupt. I feel like I have some sense of an understanding of why they're corrupt. I mean, they have mm-hmm. to pay for their own uniforms, their own bullets, their own gas. I mean, I was always told if I'm ever driving in Peru and a cop waves me over to pull me over, don't, you know, just keep going, pretend you didn't see him because yeah. he's not going to chase you. Yeah, he's not going <laughs> to waste his own gas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Flag you down. How do you think the uh, the robbery changed the Hoff. That was the name of the uh, hostel that he ran down there. It was It was called the Hoff. How do you think it changed, though? Because I, when I was there, I was there two years ago initially and did a lot of my photography stuff down there, still selling stuff from them, by the way. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. But it was a different, for me anyway, as an outsider and coming down and sort of visiting the place. Mm-hmm. It was a different, completely different vibe after after the robbery in August because from my standpoint... And again, I'm not integrated into the place on a personal level, like not like you are, not like people who have been there volunteering for you know six months. Mm-hmm. But to come back with the um, the knowledge of what happened in August, it was really hard for me to comfortably assimilate myself to being there. In other words, it was great during the day, but as soon as the sun went down and I'd be in the dorm trying to sleep, every sound, every I mean, it was it was almost like there was no protection whatsoever. Right, but you knew about it. I did, right. But I'm, that's what I'm asking, though. Yeah. I mean, for you, how did that affect you and your uh, maybe your peace of mind as far as uh, you'd been there for six years at that point? Oh, it fucked it all up. <laughs> and this, well, this wasn't the first robbery either, though. I, I, it was the first armed robbery. Right. So in my mind, it's the first real robbery. How many times were you uh, robbed overall? Seven times total. Seven times in six years? Seven Is times right? in, the, in the whole time that I was there at the Hoff. I was robbed one other time at the weigh-in. How long were you at the Hoff? Uh, I got there in June 2012. So five and a half years. So seven times in, or six times in five and a half years? Yeah, but I want to break that out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's because, where I was going to go. So, yeah. Okay, so I moved there in June, middle of June 2012, mm-hmm. right? No one was up there. It's just broken crack houses, basically. Right. Uh, graffiti all over the place and I don't even think anybody knew I was up there <laughs> you know except for my <laughs> landlady I don't even think she knew I was up there graffiti is like the Peruvian and Latin American Sherwin Williams man you need a little paint on your yeah, you just get somebody with a spray can and they just say graffiti's <laughs> everywhere <laughs> Yeah, even up there at 12,000 feet <laughs> that's true yeah. no and the buildings just had weird juju to them and I actually yeah. had the shaman from, from down at the inn come up and blow out all the bad juju and you know and so I spent two months that's inaccurate. I sp- <laughs> it took me two months to clean it up. <laughs> I didn't yeah. spend two months cleaning it up. I was shooting other stuff, doing a documentary and stuff. And, yeah. um, and uh, two months later, 
uh, my mom came to visit and uh, we had some enthusiastic volunteers there, uh, one of which was my friend Julia, the one who was in the robbery, mm -hmm. and um, rounded up a whole crew and we cleaned the whole place up. And, and Yeah, when I first moved there, everything was just kind of all over the place. It was just me and maybe a couple volunteers coming and going out of living mm -hmm. there, coming up from the way in, which was our neighbor. And, um, ayahuasca retreat originally, right? Uh, yeah. Well, originally trekking retreat when I first got there and I helped convert them, you know, do the construction that got them to, uh, opening as a ayahuasca retreat center. And that was for a long period and then went back now to being a mountaineering lodge, one of the really wealthy ones. Um, so, or I should say one of the really expensive ones. Yeah. <laughs> They're not one of the really wealthy ones. <laughs> Wanky. Yeah. Oh boy. It's a um, beautiful place. Yeah, it's really good. In fact, I liked um who's that guy that you said was the hero of Michigan? The what? the guy who owns the Tigers? Oh, uh Mike Illich. Yeah, he's, Yeah, I think he, it was his son. If it's his if it's the right son, he's now cuz Mr. Illich senior, Mike Illich, uh I think it's senior. Anyway, the guy who owned the Tigers and the Red Wings and all that, yeah. he died about a year ago. Yeah, I think it was his son who came. If it's the same one, he's now taking over ownership of the Tigers. Sounds Do right. Do you remember his name? I think it was Junior. Yeah. <laughs> so you had the owner of the... I think... I'm, I would love to find this out because I think you had the owner, the current owner of the Detroit Tigers and the Detroit Red Wings stay at uh, stay at the end while you were there. Yeah, and he, he came because it was described as the Four Seasons of the Andes. And I think that's kind of elaborate, but... Kind of fair. Maybe maybe there's some sort of <laughs> doctor-patient confidentiality thing here. Did he was he was this was there for the ayahuasca? No, he just was there I, to kind of just decompress a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just ran into him there. Yeah, okay. So it's interesting. But um, you had some other. I know we're going off on tangents here. We'll get by. I have it planted in my head. I want to right. hear about the robberies over the time. But you had some other people that came while you were there too. There was a, like a, a model or something that. Uh, popped in yeah there were lots of i mean there were lots of people there was some like i don't know number one pop singer from like india who was there that was really interesting yeah um yeah she was i mean everyone who came was super cool yeah there was a big supermodel who came she was in the first retreat and i don't want to mention any names no, 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 of no, stuff no. but yeah. um it was interesting with the singer the pop singer or whatever she was super cool and she came with this like um i don't know if it was a guy who was in her band or it was like a partner singer whatever it was and he was really interesting because he came like decked out almost like you know like Mick Jagger arriving kind of and had this kind of exterior about him that was you know he had this stage name that he introduced himself you know like hey I'm Bono that kind of thing you know and within an hour he just changed and by the end of that hour, he was in blue jeans and... Took his uniform off. He took his, his uniform costume. off. Yeah. He told us he was actually from Michigan. He, you know... Wow. <laughs> you know, he told us his real name, which he went by for the rest of the time that he was there. Yeah. And he just seemed at ease. He got out of character. Yeah. But it was it was neat to see that transition when he arrived, yeah. you know, and how quickly it, it went away and what from what seemed like how comfortable he became there. But yeah, oh, about the robberies. So back to the robberies... Didn't even realize I was robbed the first time because I just, I couldn't find stuff mm -hmm. like my DVD player and a video projector Thought you misplaced stuff it like or something. that. Yeah. Cause we just moved and cleaned and the whole group was there cleaning and I was like, ah, shit, I can't find this. And one of my friends was like, that all sounds like expensive stuff that you can't find. Are you sure you weren't robbed? And I was like, no, nah, I don't 
think so. Not here. Yeah. And by then I'd already been hit once uh, at the inn. Somebody stole my sleeping bag and bivy, which actually was returned um, with the money that was in it. So oh, wow. <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the owner of the inn, who's kind of known as a shaman kind of guy, um, told the kid that he suspected that he knew it was him and that he was going to like put some curse on him or something like that. <laughs> And the guy came back, his face was twitching and everything. And he's like, here you go. Like, don't, you know. <laughs> wow, I wish we could do that here. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> you probably can in some parts. Yeah, right. Um, but anyway, so that was the first robbery that I count is, uh, that was in August. Uh, that was like, he grabbed my backpack out of my room at some point. I was robbed again the next month. Basically, I was robbed four times in four months. Uh, the second time was a grab and run. I had, um, some volunteers there and they lost a lot of money, like $1,500 in cash and, uh, cameras and stuff like that. There was a whole recourse there. You want to talk about recourse. This was corruption on our side. It was ugly. Um, corruption on your side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we had two colonels working for us over at the, the inn and, uh, we put them into action and went down to the police station and we got a warrant right away and we went and searched this kid's house that we had no proof of anything that he had done it it was just the guy who had stolen my sleeping bag before and we got a full police search party to run through their entire house it felt fucking disgusting i would never do that again and did he and and i wasn't the motivator by it and and no he didn't have anything it wasn't him I'm pretty sure it was the landlady's son, the one who we did catch. We can say Junior's name. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, I was going to get into it when we got there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the third time I was robbed, I was away. Uh, I had come back here because my dad was sick. And so I came back to just check on him. And I found out we'd been robbed with a key. So <laughs> that one, I'm pretty sure it was Junior because who the fuck else has a key to all the locks? Yeah, right. You know, Junior is the son of the landlady. So... Um, and that not much was taken. It was like, uh, the shaman guy that had come up and blown out all the bad energy before he was now living there and the guy stole his pants and his shoes. And I think maybe some other more serious stuff, but I don't, don't, from him, it was just like pants and shoes. And I don't really remember that one being that big of a deal. Right. And then finally, uh, in November, 2012, we started hosting, that was the first permaculture class that I hosted. And the very, the first day as students were arriving, um, they arrived to us having been broken into and, and robbed. Wow. And we had a kid there, this Australian kid who was just sort of a shit show. Is this emotional, you mean? Like psychologically yeah, from like, the robbery? No, 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 no. He just like, in general, he hadn't gotten his shit together in life you know (laughs) he was a really good cook and i wanted to try and help him out Mm -hmm. and like was like hey why don't you cook for this course yeah and um but no he's just like i don't know just makes is known for making really bad decisions (laughs) and he had been robbed heavily and he was just freaking out everywhere and i have students showing up for this course and who have just paid a bunch of money to come here and they just see this you know broken windows a guy going on about how he got robbed and now he's going to kill him and you know and like i don't know like, yeah, thankfully all the students stayed and had a great time, but yeah. that was our opening to... It was like, a first impression. Huh? Yeah, that was the Kawimanti opening right there. Mm-hmm. So that was it. And then we had that course. So the permaculture course was, my idea for it was I wanted to include the locals. And so for every paying student that came and took the course, it sponsored a local Quechua farmer to also attend. Mm-hmm. And then Julia, uh, the friend we've been talking about, 
um, she took the course for free in exchange for translating the English to Spanish so that everyone could understand. So the whole course mm -hmm. was taught twice through English and Spanish, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really great. And after that, the robbery stopped. So I kind of attributed it to, well, okay, Gringo moved up to a hill. Nobody knows who the fuck he is. Yeah. Um, let's let's go fuck just with go him. fuck with him. Yeah. You know, but then as soon as, I, as soon as I started including the the locals and things and getting involved with things, like all of a sudden it stopped. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah, oh. he's okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. okay, cool. And I started to get my, to know my neighbors and we mm -hmm. started buying milk from the local farmers. And I don't know. I don't know if that really was the reason or not because of who it ended up being, you right. know. But that was the only thing I could figure. So I felt safe after that, mm -hmm. especially after like five, six, seven months went on. And then that following August 2013, that was a big robbery where we, you know, it was, again, it was a grab and run. Mm -hmm. And it was stupid because everyone saw this kid junior sitting behind my house, staring at the bathroom window, which is like the back window of mm -hmm. my cabin. Um, for about an hour and then shortly after everyone went to lunch came back out and found out My bag was missing the camera was you know, like my house had been so robbed. he wait a minute I, I don't think I'd heard that part of it. He was sitting where he was contemplating robbing it directly behind your uh, Yeah, door? like there's a big rock behind my house. Yeah, and he was sitting on that and it's like 10 15 feet away from it and just sitting there with his girlfriend and another friend of his just staring I think they're in need of money and they're trying to psych themselves up but everybody saw them there you know <laughs> and we didn't i mean i wasn't there i was in the middle of a uh this course thing that was a weekend course so i wasn't down i wasn't there but um yeah everyone went to lunch and then next thing you know we've been robbed and and so that's a special course, kind of stupid well yeah i mean we wow. caught the guy within two days just yeah which was mainly just finding out where he was yeah and uh met up with him i didn't want to involve the police mm -hmm. uh i just he was a 17 year old kid i knew his father had died when he was 12 and troubled kid i didn't want to throw him in prison or anything like that and he would have because in peru it's um it's a high offense it's like a next level of burglary if you steal more than 500 dollars mm -hmm. worth of stuff and he had stolen a three thousand dollar camera yeah and so, and he sold it immediately for nothing, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, he sold it for 1,500, 1500 soles, which is oh, about $500. Yeah. And then split that with the friend that he stole it with. Well, somebody got a deal. Yeah. Wow. So, met up with him. We have him on tape because my friend Alex, as we were talking about him, like, you know, like, while we're having this whole discussion uh, at a cafe, Alex had his iPhone on the table and he just had it on record. Yeah. So we had a nice confession from him also. Right. But what resulted was we had a six week long conversation with him and his family about how to address this appropriately without involving the police. Mm -hmm. And it translated into that, the value of that camera went towards prepaid rent. Mm -hmm. The actual value. Yeah. The yeah. three, the, the value for me to rebuy that. Right. Right. After that whole process, then again, I felt, okay, that's resolved. I feel I feel safe again. Mm -hmm. And it, and it was fine for another, I think until February the next year. And then he broke in again. And that time again, we were in eating lunch mm -hmm. and he went in, grabbed a bag, had the same exact stuff in it that he had stolen the last time. Um, so he had just restolen the same stuff that we had gotten back from him after the first robbery, obviously minus the camera, because that was the only thing we didn't get back. 
So anyways, he didn't even get down the hill at that point because by then we had a motorcycle. So we rode down the hill and we had, we'd caught him within two hours. Mm-hmm. Although we didn't actually get him. He was walking with two friends, one of which had a backpack. When he saw us, he bolted and I saw the kid with the backpack and I thought, well, fuck that kid. I'm going after the one with the backpack. Right. Got him, got all my stuff back. Yeah. And then never really saw Junior again. But at that point, then I was like, well, fuck it. That's, I upheld my end of not filing a, a yeah. police report on the first incident. There's nothing saying I can't do it on the second right. one. Yeah. So I did file a report at that point. I let that kid go because that kid seemed terrified and he, I don't know, he was like 14 and didn't really know rang- what was going he on. Wrangled, and he got, got wrangled into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so his parents came and I'm sure he got the shit kicked out of him because mm-hmm. that's what happens. But I told his parents, I was like, I'm fine with this kid. Just, I don't ever, if I ever see him up near my place again, I'm calling the police and I'm hauling him in. I'm pressing full charges. So I just make sure that he's not hanging out with Junior anymore. Right. (laughs) Because that's who brought him there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was the last real robbery. Because shortly after that, Junior by then had gotten into robbing stores and um, down in town. Apparently half the town in Nueva Florida wanted blood from him. Yeah. Uh, During one of those robberies, he was robbing a knife point and, uh, I don't know, got startled or something, but slashed an eight-year-old kid's face. The kid was eight? Yeah. You know, I, I didn't hear that. I, I thought it was like a like a teenager or somebody got in a fight with. I didn't know it was an eight-year-old. Mm-mm, no, it was an eight-year-old. Holy shit. Yeah, or young. I don't know. He was yeah. a kid. He was under 10. Wow. Yeah, and so I heard about that through my staff and uh, went back down to the police station, said, hey, I know exactly where this guy lives. I have denuncia- uh, police reports mm-hmm. out for him. Let's go get him. Yeah. And they just sat there. Police did? Didn't, yeah. Didn't do anything? No. They're like, oh, that's kind of far away. <laughs> you know, or how do you know? Or what, you know, like these kinds of things. And it was like, okay. So he ended up in jail. Mm-hmm. And he's been in jail for the past four years since wow. then. Yeah. And he just got out uh, yeah. this summer, right? I don't know. He's apparently still in jail. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah. We give a little background on this because that, that factored into a lot that was going on when we were there in a December, early January. We thought he had gotten out. Well, we were told by his mother that he had been gotten well, that he had gotten out. Or we thought he had gotten out. And he was still in there. So his what was his what was the point of her telling <laughs> just to, to freak scare you out. So scare you and kinda Yeah, just, I think. I assume. I can't think of any other reason why she would say that. Wow. We had some pretty hefty discussions over, over old boy. I think it was the first week of January, wasn't it? End no, by then I'd closed. This <clears> was <throat> in the end of December. Yeah. It was right yeah, after yeah. Christmas. Yeah, in between that, that week between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, because the real reason that I closed and moved out, didn't, didn't re- he didn't really factor in. I knew he'd be getting out at some point mm-hmm. and that I'd have to deal with it. And I was, wasn't sure how, but I wasn't going to move because of it. Yeah. Um, but it was the... It was, all, it was the emails from my mom, from my friend, mm-hmm. that gut feeling that you and I had. Yeah. You know, I arrived there on a gut feeling. I'm not going to stay. Ignore, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when I don't want to be there yeah. anymore. Yeah. And um, that was the real reason why I, I shut it down. It did feel dangerous. did feel threatening. Yeah. Um, not be, I mean, partly because Junior. Yeah. But he was not. It a, was a, it was a was, combination of a lot of things, though, I think, that was going on at that, at that point in time. I think he was just sort of a... He was an extra part of it. Yeah. He was a, He's a violent, unknown quantity who is kind of known. I mean, I knew personally he 
doesn't like me in there yeah in those houses mm-hmm. and i think uh well you'd also come to the conclusion i think that uh we didn't really get into the background on uh, primitiva you know, junior's mom and the claim that she had or thought she had to the land uh and she'd been harassing you for a long time for rent and, and things mm-hmm. saying hey you're squatting on my land i need my rent and i need my rent and, I need my rent. and you're like well you no, i bought it and at some point i think you came to the conclusion or the realization, maybe, I don't know, you, you can characterize it how you like, but mm-hmm. that, well, maybe she does kind of have, you know, a claim to the to the, the land that I have. And I, if I remember correctly, correct me, honestly, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but with thinking Junior was out, I remember it sort of fueled an idea that this kid's fucking crazy anyway. He's a loose cannon, he's violent, blah, 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 right. blah. You add something that may actually be a legitimate claim to his father's land on top of that, and right. then this guy, you yeah. don't know what the hell's going to happen with him. Right? No, yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely that. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm trying to convince myself I didn't run away scared, which, you know, probably did partly. But I think I would have stood my ground if I felt I, if I, one, if I wanted to be there again. Yeah. yeah and yeah. two, if I felt like I had a really solid 100% claim. Yeah. What I, it was only in this past month in January mm-hmm. while addressing like all of Primitiva's shit that was coming out and um, yeah, just all of it trying to figure out where I actually stood yeah. after I'd closed the Hoff. Yeah. It was more, I learned much more of the story behind it. Mm-hmm. Right. I had always known that her husband had bought the land. Yeah. Let's, let's give a little background. All on right. This. Let me, let me go into the full story. Yeah. Yeah. Back in 99, so her husband, Claudium, was a mountain guide. He had a really solid client, this Japanese guy. Uh, The Japanese guy, I had always assumed, was the guy who had bought the land through Claudio's name because the Japanese guy is a foreigner. He wanted a base camp, and he loved to, you know, he came every year to go climbing. And I, my assumption had been that he had bought the land through Claudio um, because Claudio's a Peruvian and it's a lot easier to buy land that way. And they were close friends and it all made sense. Right. So that was in 99 that they bought the land. Turns out that wasn't true. Turns out Claudio was just doing well as a guide and had earned the money through guy. I mean, you make good money as a guide because it's life threatening, which in fact killed him in the end, Mm -hmm. but he saved up, bought the land, had his own base camp that he was hosting the Japanese guy out of, Mm -hmm. but to the locals, the Hoff before it became the Hoff was known as the Japanese bungalows because of that guy. Right. Right. So, so that was where my assumption came from and my understanding from talking with locals and people and, you know, Mm -hmm. being involved in that way, but it didn't lessen my idea that they own the land. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's some backstory to junior too. You figure they bought the land in 99 Mm -hmm. junior. When's he born? 95, I think. So, you know, he's like three or four when they buy it. Uh, so he's grown up there mm-hmm. with his dad, right? Right. And his and his mom and dad and whoever, um, when thing when times were good, mm-hmm. right? Dad's making good money and they've got their own land up there. They've got how, two houses down in Nueva Florida, which is a nice area down near the city, and they have their their homeland where they had grown up in the village in Yupa. Mm-hmm. So then, two thousand, I think it's two thousand eight or nine, something like that. The father, Claudio, and the Japanese guy both died in an avalanche, I think, or some sort of mountaineering accident. Yeah. They're killed. Turns out Claudio had a first wife, and Primitiva, my landlady, was the second wife. Mm -hmm. And 
This is where the complication comes in. So Primitiva, well, anyways, everybody, I don't know who, but the whole place was looted immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, All the mountaineering stuff, all that's pulled out. Yeah. Um, Fine. Then the houses sit there derelict for four years. Um, I think that's when the, where the graffiti comes from. That's where the bad juju comes from. I mean, just the whole place just felt kind of gross and, you know, like yeah. felt like there'd been bad party shit happen there, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Broken windows, all that stuff. Right. So then I come and every year Primitiva goes around to my neighbor, Alex, who has a, a hostel, the, the way in that we were talking about before and offers to rent it to him. And he's like, I don't need that. I have this place. Like, look, (laughs) but he always said, you know, I'd be happy to, to teach you and your son how to, how to run a hostel Mm -hmm. and you could have your own business there and I'll show you how it's run and how, how to do it. And that was not of interest. So, so it just sat there and became a teenage party place. Mm -hmm. Then I come along four years later and now, um, we've been talking about, intentional community living you know all this like you know spirituality synchronicity living in community permaculture ayahuasca all the fun stuff right i was really into the community side of it so primitiva comes around in 2012 and says hey do you want to rent my land or annual visit yeah and now we're like well yeah maybe because every a whole bunch of volunteers had turned up along with me and basically within like three or four months we had a whole crew there that was staying long term and looking at living there and we were like well maybe we'll go up there and that'll be ground zero for the this intentional community that we're talking about yeah we'll we'll live up there and we'll work down at the end because i was the one most enthusiastic about the community stuff i was nominated to be the guy to go up there and clean it up so that's how i got up there there was some discrepancies about the, the there was a guy eric who used to manage the lodge there and he's he grew up in waraz and was very business savvy and uh, he was saying, don't sign, don't start paying rent until you have a signed contract um, because her papers are not checking out as far as owning the land. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay. So then I'm, I'm the kind of guy I like to pay my rent early. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, I usually have my rent paid by like the 20th or 25th before the first, you know? Yeah. So to sit by and just be like, have this Quechua lady come up who does, who can't read or write, doesn't you know, like Spanish is her second language. She speaks about as well as I do, which is not well mm-hmm. and looking for her rent. Um, and me saying, well, no, we need this contract and there's this legal work and, and not really understanding what I was saying. So yeah. I wasn't paying rent for the first, uh, four months that I was there. Yeah. So that started the, or five months, I guess, until we finally, we, a friend of ours from Lima came up and she, she and I, I paid for all the all the contracting, legal work, taxis, meals while we're there. And we spent a month um, running around with Primitiva trying to solidify her papers, her claim to her land, which were not valid at the time. Um, They just said that her husband owned it and it said nothing about her. And so we were trying to get it in her name because we knew there was some other family out there challenging her and how dare they and blah, blah, blah. blah. (laughs) So... In the end, we never did get it sorted out. And I just said, fuck it. You know what? This poor lady, she just needs rent. So I just gave her all the back rent and started paying rent regularly until the thing happened with her son where he stole the camera and we Mm -hmm. decided on having prepaid rent. So then I never paid rent again. So there's that animosity and -hmm. and confusion in the the story. Four years pass, well, three years pass. And then 2016, this other family that was out there 
This is the first wife and two daughters from Claudio, the guy who had bought the land. They had won the inheritance case. There had been an inheritance case going on for the past eight years. Uh, the four years before I had arrived and then the four years after I had arrived. Um, that was all ongoing. And meanwhile, Primitivo was renting the place out to me the whole time mm -hmm. with that level of rent being paid. So they come along and all of a sudden I find out Primitiva doesn't own the land at all. She has no claim to it. There's been this inheritance case that I didn't know anything about. Mm. And I find out that, yeah, they had been awarded full custody of the land. Junior had gotten, um, he was only supposed to get 10% of the inheritance, but he managed to get away with two houses down in Nueva Florida, which have a way higher property value yeah. than the land that I got. Um, but the first wife and the two daughters were like, fuck it, you know, we're kind of done with this court system. And sure, you can have those two houses. We don't really want them anyways. We want the land because we're just going to turn around and sell it to the gringo who's already living there. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so that's what they did. They came up, they checked in with me, made sure I wanted to buy it yeah. and, and, and sold it. And so that's when I rounded up my partners and bought mm -hmm. the land. We did a whole title check, turned out everything was legal and fine. And Primitiva and her son were legitimately not on it and not mm -hmm. in the registration and all that stuff. Um, and put a down payment down. Yeah. And then last year, uh, paid the final installment. And so it's about 30 grand that we paid for the land altogether yeah. in cash. And so the end of that contract with Primitivo about the stolen camera, that was prepaid from October 2013 to October 2017. Hmm. So Man, that October started... 2017 yeah. occurred just after I put the last 20 grand down on the, on the land. Yeah. I was away and then I returned with you in yeah. December. Right. But she had already started coming around and harassing the manager that I had there saying you need right. to pay rent and all of this stuff. That Meanwhile, Junior's still in jail. Right. So up to now, December uh, of the, this past December, um, that's when all the trouble started of Primitiva coming up and saying, you know, I need my rent. I need my rent. We had this contract, blah, 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 blah. Right. Right. And I start, uh, same old argument. I'm like, yeah. you don't own the land. We've done all the research. We've, you know, we yeah. tried to help you own the land. We tried to even fudge things so that you could, you know, get the land. And when we didn't understand what was going on, um, and then we, you know, like we did everything that I needed to do to check into it. Mm. And, and then turns out this other family owned it and I bought it and, uh, so, you know, and that just got into a shouting match of her saying, but I'm the landlady, I'm the landlady, I'm right. the landlady, right? You know me, I don't lose my temper very much. Very rarely. <laughs> I've seen maybe once or twice. Right, yeah. Maybe with me. I'm not quite sure. Probably. But, <laughs> but that would happen with Primitiva because it's just like, you're just talking to a brick wall that's being aggressive to you. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. like, but I'm the landlady, you're, you're not, you don't have any paperwork. I have my papers, I'm the landlady. I'm like, they don't say anything. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so before I got to that point, I was just like, okay, you know what? Let's calm down. I'll take my papers. You take your papers. We'll meet with lawyers. We'll go down the city and we'll just like, hash it all out let's yeah. just get to the bottom of this so that Find we're not the truth yeah yeah we're not arguing with each other anymore and that actually calmed her down to, to much to my surprise and she was up for it so we went down and we that was what started like uh that was just before christmas right yeah i met with the lawyers and found out maybe there was a half claim or something like that and 
I don't know, the whole lawyer thing got really confusing because my Spanish is not so good. But all I wasn't understanding the level of things that was going on in that mm-hmm. the, my lawyer didn't know much of anything that was going on. Mm-hmm. So from what she was being told by the other lawyers, she said, well, yeah, maybe you just both half own the land. And I was like, okay. Um, but she's like, but we'll go to the notary. We'll get all the all the documents printed up that are on this and I'll read it over Christmas and we'll get back and and readjourn after New Year's. Yeah. So anyways, it was through, long story short, through that whole process was how I slowly was discovering like how the land came to be the where, where it was. Right. Oh, the other thing was when I bought the land, there's some Peruvian law, I think because it was an inheritance case, where I needed to wait five years before I could actually get the title. I could actually have it, what they call, inscribed in my name. So you'd already paid for it, but in order for it to actually be yours, you've got to wait five years. Yeah, I think waiting for that lost uncle to claim it or Primitiva to claim it or something. So that was... Indigenous heritage or something like that as well, right? I'm not sure. No, I don't think it went into like a cultural thing. It was just like if... Yeah, it was just like if it was somebody's land that... Heritage, yeah. I the, guess so, yeah, something like Family that. heritage or something. Yeah. Like, okay, gotcha. So, anyways, so so the land's not actually in my name. I just have a contract to the title that every lawyer I've talked to and the registration people talk to and say is a solid claim mm-hmm. to it, unless somebody really has evidence that it's actually theirs. Right. And that's how I would lose it. So, anyways, in this process, I learn through various people some of which was primitivist family so i don't know how much to take that i do kind of believe it uh that primitiva helped him buy the land that she had sold animals um Mm -hmm. that they had had to put the money down for the land back in 99 Mm -hmm. uh there's a document saying that she's married to claudio the first guy Mm -hmm. but there's no quechua marriage there's no contract there's no there's no, well, Quechuans don't draw up a contract when they get married, right? No, marriage is more, I mean, they can, they do if they can, but most people can't. It's a status thing to have a wedding yeah. and to have an actual marriage. Right. I went to a wedding and, uh, and the, the priest in the midst of the ceremony was chastising everyone else saying, finally, Antonio and Beatrice are legitimizing their 25 years together. Yes. How many of you can say that? It's <laughs> like Jesus. We good? Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I said, I'm gonna meander a little bit. <laughs> it's all right. No, no worries. Okay, so legal status of the Kitchell marriage. Oh, I was talking about the first wife and the second wife, and mm-hmm. and how the first wife. Oh yeah, so the first wife, Fausta, she got the land. She got the with the the two daughters. They turned around. They wanted to sell it to me because one, I think they just wanted the money. They didn't really give a shit about the land. But also, I think. <laughs> what they told us whether or not it's true i don't know but they said they they liked the work that we were doing with the kids at that point in their with their their kids were going to the school that we work with uh down the village and they wanted to sell it to us or at least give us first option mm-hmm. what i started learning in this process of trying to figure out what happened like finding out or hearing that primitiva may have sold off animals to help buy the land back in 99 and then the fact that she's a second wife because it's a Quechua marriage, she's basically just seen legally as a mistress. So doesn't get anything. So Junior, Junior got away Legal, with... When you say legally, though, that's that's in Peruvian law. Peruvian correct? law. And there's there there's a cultural law. But that's everywhere. But when you're talking about uh, being seen by the law, you're talking about the Peruvian government. Yeah. But she doesn't necessarily live by that 
law, correct? She more or less goes by, or I guess prioritizes Quechuan law, in quotes. <laughs> I guess in American terms, the best way I could equate it is if you take uh, some small town out of North Dakota or something like that, or, um, I mean, reservations are actually separate right. legal entities, but... Um, let's say the Appalachians, yeah, like the Appalachians. Yeah, Appalachians, yeah, Appalachians you've got, you've got your, you've got U.S. law that you need to follow. You've got mm-hmm. state laws that you need to follow. You've got local laws that you need to follow. Mm-hmm. But there's the unspoken, there's the real local community law. law. Yeah. yeah, community law. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is reinforced by the idea that it's, it's community law because, the, I mean, they're, they're indigenous people. They're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're Quechua, which is... They're Quechua Peruvians rather than, you know, Peruvians. Peruvian Quechuans, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're well, and it's also, it's like, you've got Quechua Peruvians, you've got Shipibo Peruvians, you've got Queros, you've got, you know, like all these different nations of indigenous people that are all Peruvian. Mm-hmm. They all need to follow Peruvian law, but they're not Lamanian. They're not mm-hmm. from Lima, you know, like Lima people, people on the coast. Yeah. That's Peruvian Peruvian. Mm-hmm. People, Quechua Shipibo, any of those, mm-hmm. those are indigenous Peruvians. So it's a, there's a whole like, you know, cultural thing of, there's, there's a lot of racism there on, around that. I mean, you see like literally Quechua blackface, um, on TV. Uh, I Wait mean, a minute. that, that, no, that, yeah. that isn't right. Only white people can be racist. <laughs> e- equal opportunity racism. <laughs> but, um. Yeah, so I mean, so you've you've got it's it's more of a cultural heritage thing. I mean, bound together with the culture of impoverishment, mm-hmm. uh, bound together with the culture of like Andean village life, and yeah. you know what I mean. It's every town has its own culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's exactly what we teach in our living change course. The the uh, courses we do with Portland State is like listen to your local culture, whether you're working with some Quechua Andean community or you're working with a neighborhood that you're not from. That's maybe right next to where you grew up or, you know, like I, I grew up in a suburb in Massachusetts right next to Springfield, Massachusetts. And I would never say that I'm part of Springfield's culture. It's completely right. different from where I grew up, Yeah, right. <laughs> you right. know, and that's like two miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, so I'm faced with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there's I've always recognized while I've been there that I need to follow Peruvian law and I need to follow community law Mm -hmm. and I have to do both as a foreigner and I have to figure my place out as a foreigner in in all of those various I mean Peruvian law is easier to know because it's it's like American law it's it's written down it's uh, stringent nobody really understands it except for the basics you know until you get into nitty-gritties and you need lawyers one of the things that that I remember or maybe I got the impression of is that what do you do when those two things collide though when there is not a a clear distinction between the two and you have to figure out which one you have to sort of adhere to personally or everybody well, i think i think it's just a it's a sort of a general question i mean it's something that sounded like from when i was there and you were having these conversations with primitiva we we talked about this a little bit where according to peruvian law according to the government law it appeared that the land that you'd purchased you purchased properly from the people who owned it well right? i mean it doesn't appear that way it it is that way right. I, I spent a lot of time like i got confirmation on a lot of different levels saying like yes 
I do own that land. That, that was that was according to the Peruvian law. Now, That's when you Peruvian law, yeah. right? But when you put it uh, in the in the context of the community itself, there may have been a different viewpoint because they were going to prioritize the local custom in Yupa over whatever some piece of paper some bureaucrat put together down in Lima or wherever. You know, yeah, I'd, I'd say that description sounds more described, more like hardlined or defined. And I wouldn't say it's like that. I think it is what you say. Like, they're going to do what they're going to do. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think that's a conscious thing. And like, it might be mm-hmm. in like Texas. Well, it has to Texas, be. they're like, fuck you. You're not from Texas. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Right, yeah. It's not, there's not a local pride in that sense. There's, it's just, this is how it's done. Having to navigate between the two, how do you discern which way to go? You know, is it? Well, that's why I'm saying, are you saying, how do I do it? Or how does everybody do it? I would, because yeah. I think that is a personal choice. I think I, actually, I think you answered both questions. Because I, I, I was curious from, I guess from a local perspective, how. I, I think I already knew the answer to that. I think. I think from I a local perspective, you don't navigate it; you leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, from that, that would be. You. That's what I was told. That, well, that's. What do you mean? That's what you were told. Well, that's what I was told. Was I mean by my friends when I was mm. saying before is right, is okay. that the preference is the yeah we don't have foreigners living here yeah. Uh, regardless of what they're doing. Right. Um, it's great. You want to go work with the schools and help the kids out and, and, and do whatever, plant trees and create an economy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Great. They still don't want you there. Right. You know? And yeah. for me, my you're asking me which law do I follow. Mm-hmm. I can follow both as much as I can. Right. The one I prioritize is the community law. Okay. And And this is... That's the one I feel like is real law because one, I mean, on a practical sense, mm-hmm. there is no police presence up there. Right. If there is, you're being robbed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least from my experience. <laughs> um, that's not fair. I have had positive interactions with the police where they've helped me out, but mm-hmm. down in Peru. So I should say that. But in general, okay, so here's an example. So uh, Yupa, the village that's near us, that... Um, was going through a lot of robberies. They had a lot of uh, animal thefts. Yeah, yeah. And that's their um, that's their mode of living, you know? I yeah. mean, like, to steal a, somebody's bull or cow or right. something like that, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thieves in the area were getting more and more brazen, walking off, and they cut to the... They, during a celebration, a town celebration, uh, over three days, they cut the power and walked off with, like, three or four bull or... Um, in the middle of a celebration at night, hmm. um, it got to the point so bad where, you know, I was offering my help to a neighbor and I said, yeah, I heard that you guys are doing night patrols and, and stuff like that. Um, I'd like to be able to chip in and help out, you know, like play my part in the community is essentially what I was getting at. Mm-hmm. Back then I was still under the delusion. I was part of the community. Right. I didn't have too much of a delusion about that. I still knew I was on the outside, but I I thought, okay, well, if I do my bits, help work on the water tanks, patrol the street, whatever, you know, like Mm -hmm. maybe I can little by little be welcomed in. And my neighbor was, oh yeah, great. You know, like definitely we could use your help. And and I said, well, so what do we do when we catch them? My assumption is is you're not bringing them to the police Mm -hmm. because the assumption generally is that the police are involved. So, I mean, what would be the point? And he goes, no, 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 we'll kill them. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. I've heard, I've heard that story a dozen times. It's still just like, oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> well, what they ended up doing, they put a big sign up down in Unchis, which is the town where you take the combi in. They put a big sign up that said, we lynch thieves. <laughs> Shortly after that, the, the thieving problem, I think, slowly went away or maybe quickly went away. I don't know, but they no moved li- on to a different village. No lynchings that you were aware of? There were no, no, there were no lynchings. Some real Wild West shit. It is. I mean, I always equated, like, my understanding of what the U.S. was 100 years ago. So take 1918 Montana. Right. Right. And I came to this impression when I was looking at buying the land. This Mm -hmm. was before I was buying it. And looking over Primitiva's claim and and getting into the registration and finding out the the history of how the land had been, like, um, you know, cordoned off or come up with borders and registered and this kind of thing. It was a lot like, yeah, like the Wild West 1918, where, yeah, they had laws in place now. They were starting to define lands, but it was new. Yeah. And nobody really understood it. And there was a lot of still like old settlers or old indigenous claims that had not been marked down or had been marked down in a weird way. Nobody really knew how to interpret it. Um, Mm. You know, there was was a lot of that. So I, I feel like... The equivalent of that, it's like the U.S. in the West 100 years ago. You've seen the movie, the HBO series Deadwood. Remember that? Oh, yeah. It kind of reminds me, you know, where they've got the, the old Wild mm-hmm. West. They've got Calamity Jane and you know, Bill Hickok and all those guys are mm-hmm. still there. still the Wild West, but the government is slowly starting to creep in and people are trying to adjust and adapt to some state other than anarchy. <laughs> right, yeah. And that's what, like 1870 or something yeah, like that? Yeah, whatever it was, yeah. So, I mean, you take Deadwood, yeah. right? if it had survived, yeah. and put that in 1918, where the government has crept in just a little bit more. Yeah. You know, that's kind of where... That's kind of how it feels, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, there is order. There is some semblance some. of it. Yeah. There's a post office now, you know? Woo. They've got phones. Yeah. Cell phones, you know? Still don't want to ship anything there through that post office. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something, might, something might vanish on the stage on the way to town. You exactly. never know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's, I think it's a fair equivalent idea to just get the idea of what that is like there. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah, the yeah, Wild yeah. West. It's like Close. just post. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, just after it's, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, to get back to this question, because yeah. that question is very relevant to the whole idea of the land thing. Yeah is through learning that Primitiva may have had a hand in, in buying the land, mm-hmm. being part of it. And even if she didn't, doesn't matter. She really was his wife, as far as I know from my gringo neighbors, as well as my Quechua neighbors and friends, mm-hmm. saying that they always knew her to be the wife. Right. Um, my friend Alex at the way in, he, he said, yeah, I, you know, I always knew those two to be together, mm-hmm. uh, to be married. But the fact of it is that Peruvian law does not recognize her as a legal wife and this is why she doesn't get any inheritance Mm. and so for me now the buying of the land yeah i have a hundred percent legal claim to it right but you know so did the dutch when they bought manhattan Mm. and that's what it feels like it feels like somebody has it's like if somebody stole your camera and then sold it back to you yeah or 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 you bought somebody's camera that was that you knew to be stolen and you knew the person. Yeah. And you're going to go give it to them after you spend $3,000 on it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And for me, I'm thinking, yeah, I would give it back to him. But I need to make sure that that's the case. And I need to value my own efforts and my own um, everything that we've put into it. 
and and I need I don't know I just it's it's something that I struggle with yeah and um but if I if I come to the conclusion what I don't want is I don't want the money to be the the reason that I'm not handing it over right I don't want well I spent 30 grand on it I mean that's a lot I'm keeping that shit now yeah I mean I make minimum wage occasionally (laughs) but I think it's um I guess I, what I see here and the discussion that I've been having with the, the partners that I bought the land with and, and, and fortunately they're, that's, that's one other place I wanted to go with that was the, to have a conversation about Julia and Dave a little bit and how they both reacted to uh, the decision you made uh, when you, when you did decide to pull the plug. Oh, to close it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's a separate one for, for selling the land, but, yeah. um, but yeah, I mean both, well, Julia was really supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, she, she was also, I think it's, I think it's important to mention that she was there for the robbery. Right. Um, she was the one, as I mentioned, who got a rib kicked in. Yeah. Um, and, uh, when, and there were other kind of personal issues surrounding the land thing and the Hoff for her, where it too was passing for her, you know, where, where with me, my mom's retiring here. I'm feeling a calling to come home. Yeah. And I was already talking about renting out the Hoff or, or mm-hmm. finding long-term managers or getting yeah. it in local hands. And mm-hmm. I was talking about that before even the robbery happened. So I was already on my way out. But with the more serious interest of having the land and being able to run programs there and work, keeping the work in Peru going on. Keeping a toe in Peru rather than having your entire body there. I but. still saw it as the basis of where where my work was. Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to live there anymore. And Julia seems to be on the same page. She's had a love affair with South America for a long time. Mm-hmm. She's been backpacking all around there for, since I, I met her when she's 21, she's 28 now. And she's been spending all that time floating up and down Latin America, going to Cuba, going to Mexico, going to Argentina, going all over the place, visiting these eco villages and farms and you know, just learning more and more. She's our permaculture teacher also. So she's Mm -hmm. learning more and more about holistic ways of living and bringing that to the course. It's been centered in, in Latin America. You know, she hasn't been spending time in Africa or India or Australia, you know, or anything like that studying where Australia is kind of the home of where the permaculture movement came from. Um, so, so that was really, it felt really nice that when I was saying, look, I'm going to close this place down because I'm moving back to the States that she was like, that's really, it's really sad to leave all that effort and that work that we've done behind, but I support you and I'm, I feel the same way. I feel like I'm ready to return to England and, Mm -hmm. and set up in England and have my community and my friends around. And whereas Dave was, um, Dave was supportive, but he was asking the tough questions that I didn't want to hear. (laughs) Um, and was feeling like I was rushing too much. Maybe I was, but, um, my return to that was he also wasn't there you right. know i mean yeah. i was there on my own yeah i mean you were there but you well, I wasn't you weren't much. a part of that yeah, you know i, was, I mean i was yeah. on my own handling all of that I stuff. was i was the conversational sounding board that was about all i could really do yeah yeah and i think um and so i think that's why i was getting annoyed with him uh in the questions that he was asking, even though I I respected the questions he was asking and I yeah. respected the points he was making, and I it's from a detached I, point of view though. Yeah, I agreed with them to a point, and I also felt like I was solid in making my own judgment call to 
to yeah. go at the pace that I was going at. Yeah, that it were, needed to happen fast. And you were getting a lot of the same input from, I mean, not just me. I mean, you and I had the conversations that I told you similar things that your mom told you, other friends had told you before that. The place was getting, it was feeling dangerous at that right. point where you were, I, I felt like you were legitimately putting yourself at risk if you tried to continue to hold on to the place. I think your mom said something down that line. Well, that was the, that was the catalyst. I mean, yeah. my mom... She sent me so on the on the second day after um, New Year's. She sent that's when I got that email that yeah, she had not been that. able to sleep that night. Um, she'd been up all night with this like intense feeling of dread yeah. that my life was in mortal danger. Well, I had the, I, I'm not trying to uh, you know I don't believe in the the feeling thing so much anymore. We'll get into that later, right? Yeah. But <clears throat> I was getting the same sense though, almost the entire time that I was up there. Well, and me too. Yeah, and that's, that's. I mean, that's where it resonated. Was that it wasn't? It wasn't just my mom telling no, me I'm know, in I danger and I'm going to run off. No, no, no. I, I didn't. And, mean I, to, and I know that's not yeah, what you're saying. I'm yeah. just saying, like for me, this her was a consistent... and a friend of mine, uh, Eli. Also, yeah. she wrote saying that she also felt like when I left, it it had the same feeling as when her husband was deployed to Iraq. This is or, the, uh, Afghanistan. The same theme, though, running throughout every person not every maybe not every person i don't want to get that black and white but just about every voice i think that was coming at you offering like it was a concern yeah. it was a legitimate concern it wasn't like oh i'd love to have you home and go have some rum and coke chris that'd be great no yeah. it's like uh dude <laughs> <laughs> this is legit right. you know this is your a lot of people were, were getting the sense i think that you were uh, in peril if you held on too long. Well, and close people, people who know yeah. that I can be really stubborn and, and ignore that because oh, yeah. I don't want to be running. Well, I was scared. <laughs> driving you, I was driving you nuts down there. I guess it got to the point he didn't, you know, that uh, you didn't, I guess. I had to shut up. I mean, I, I got to the point where it was like, okay, you know what? I've said my piece. It's still there. I still am compelled to, to like ring some warning bells. At some point, I'm going to get really fucking, I, I can be annoying anyway. But at some point, <laughs> I'm going to become a nuisance and I'm going to become, you know, He's going to dig his heels in at some point. Which so is I, what I was doing. Yeah, and I you know, I had to just basically shut the conversations down after a while you mm-hmm. know, and just let you do your thing. But to bring it back, though, uh, what we were talking about was Dave and this detached uh, perspective that he had and offering, I guess, uh, suggestions on how he'd like you to handle it while he's not there. I don't think he had a, a really clear concept of the vibe and the energy and the uh, the texture of how life was there. After no. you got back in December, at least. No, and after, I think it was maybe a week or two, I was finally able to articulate kind of what that was. Also, where the, he thought I was running away from Junior Yeah, was a big part of it. Because, mm-hmm. mm, what, four or five days before that email, uh, that was when Primitiva had said that right. he was out of jail. Yeah. And that's when you moved out of the Hoff. Yeah. And... And I was like, oh, okay. Well, well that now, was related. How are we going to... Well, I, had, I know that, yeah, yeah. I had my own camera gear down there, and that seems to be a popular target. <laughs> it is. So, yeah. Was... No, and and, um, and it made sense. But I think that was the last thing David heard, and next thing he heard was that I was right. closing. Right, And then he heard that I was closing really fast. And so I think in his yeah. mind... That makes sense. He was seeing like, oh, shit, this guy's out of prison, and I'm, I need to get out of here, you yeah. know? Yeah. Whereas we'd faced him before. We'd dealt with him for years. You know, I was also coming from the perspective of, I don't know what he learned in prison. I don't know who he's connected to he now. He might have radicalized himself a little bit while he was in there, you know. I'm I'm fairly certain that he did. Yeah. It's a training ground, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the University for Criminals, mm-hmm. is my opinion of it. Um, but yeah, so I think 
that's that's where Dave was coming from. And when I explained more that it was also that it that the catalyst was actually coming from the intuitive feeling, the gut feeling of like my mom saying that. I mean, I've always from my walk cross country way back um, when I got lost in Wyoming for. 10 days and was out of contact. We'll get into all this later on. We're going to, right. We'll, yeah. We'll but I mean, like all this later, <laughs> but my mom thought, you know, she's out there thinking that I'm dead. And let me just, let me just uh, take a break here and let the, 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 the listener know you and I have, uh, some really wonderful stories of the, the, just the traveling stuff from the last year for you. It's been what, 15 years now since you did your walk cross country. This year, yeah. Yeah. And it was 03 was when I left, March of 03. We spent a good portion of uh, 2009 hitchhiking around the country, Slab City. We were out in, uh, that was 2010, I guess, but I uh, spent a lot mm-hmm. of time out east. You were part of the uh, the process where I met my sisters and my brother, <laughs> and uh, you woke up in the garage, like the off room up in Boise. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I was meeting my sister for the. First, I won't get into this whole thing, but I I was meeting my sister for the first time. This was in August of two thousand nine, and Chris was like coming through on his way to Port Townsend and was coming through Boise, and it's like <laughs> he needs a place to stay. And I haven't even met her husband, and she's not here. I am asking my fourteen-year-old nephew, "Hey, do you think your mom would mind <laughs> if I put this hitchhiker in the room off the garage for <laughs> <laughs> the long-lost Uncle Todd?" Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, we got a, yeah, a whole bunch, of, and, and this it isn't. Uh, you know, we're not going to get delving into politics and all that. I think uh, maybe in the next episode we'll get into a lot more of the travel sort of stuff and, and a lot of the philosophy and ideas behind all of that. What we learned. Yeah. I think the, the only reason I brought up the walk was because, um, after those 10 days of being missing and I finally called my mom and yeah. like, hey, you know, it's was... a nice billboard for what's coming up. I just wanted to take advantage. Right, of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, she told me that uh, had I not called her that night yeah. or that afternoon, whatever it was, then that night she was going to call the state troopers and have them go look for my body out in the continental divide basin. Yeah. And, um, and, and that kind of annoyed me a little bit. And I was like, why? Um, I mean, it was sweet, but it was, it was, I was like, my mom and I were both very kind of spiritual people in that mm-hmm. sense, and believing in the intuition, yeah. in that sense. Um, and so I said, and I, I think also as preface because my mom had dumped a lot of fear on me in the beginning and kind of, I had had a chat with her about that too. So I felt like this was more of that. Um, but I had told her, I said, you know what, mom, there's tons and tons of stories of mothers having like internal feelings when their children are killed, right? Or dead somewhere in a tragic sort of circumstance. And if you don't hear from me, and you don't have that sense just to have the confidence to know that I'm okay, right? Until you have that sense. Right. So now here it is in Peru. She's having that sense. Yeah. I mean, when then what am I going to do? Yeah, but it's not true. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, Chris. I'm, I'm just fine. <laughs> you know, and at the same time, yeah. I'm having that sense as well. I'm hearing that you're having that sense. Yeah. My other friend over here in Massachusetts is... Uh, also telling me, you know, like it felt like her husband being deployed mm-hmm. and just in general, there's, there's a bad juju and, and I wasn't paying attention to it one cause I'm stubborn, but also because, you know, with the robbery, I'm mingling that with the trauma mm-hmm. and wondering like maybe, Oh, that's just the, the trauma, yeah, PTSD, you know, I just need thing. to get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, the guests seem fine. Right. Um, but I think when all of that collided on the same day, 
and we had had those conversations and I had had that feeling. It was time to acknowledge that. I mean, even how I got to Peru was based on that intuitive feeling. Yeah. Um, which, that one's a whole nother story. Yeah. But you can't, but, you can't ignore it when yeah, it's negative. Exactly. And just grab onto it. It's the whole coyote thing. You know? Yeah. It's, and yeah. if you're going to recognize something and give it validity, you have to take it when it's negative as well. Yeah, exactly. You have to have some sense of authenticity about it rather than just taking the, the positive, happy, you know, rainbows and unicorns right. and forgetting the... Well, on the other side of it was that I, I had been ignoring it for the past uh, four years. Right. Because that same... So that intuitive feeling that drove me down to Peru, two years after being there, I woke up one morning and had that same strong intuitive pull that said, okay, now go back to Springfield. Right. And my immediate reaction was no. Yeah. No. I'm not. Why? That's fucked I don't want to go home. <laughs> yeah. Six months later, I'm dragged back home to Springfield. But, right. yeah. and I've been ta- torn between Peru and, and Massachusetts since then. And so this seemed like a culmination of all of that as well. Yeah. We talked about that down there. It was almost like, okay, fucker, you're not going to go. You're not going to take the hint. I'm going to kick you the fuck out of here. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. And I think that's what it was. Yeah. Just listening to that gut and deciding like, okay. And oh, and about Dave, that that was where I explained that to him. Yeah. And that was when he started seeing more. He still thought I was moving too fast and not respecting the commitments that we had put in and, and the, mm. and making the transition of the hostel, um, more smoothly and more, you know, more intentional. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, I kind of like, I found two brothers who are a great fit. They're local guys. I wanted to put the hostel in local hands. In the, the long term, had always been get it in local hands. Yeah. Um, but these two guys, they had been friends of The Way In, um, our neighbor, uh, as well as uh, Alex's brother, Charlie, who is another, uh, they'd worked for both of them. And one of them was a mountain guide, so he had kind of an environmental component to him. So he was really into a lot of the environmental stuff that we were doing there. Mm-hmm. And then also those two brothers were neighbors of Primitiva and their family. Familiar. So they were not just familiar, they are on friendly terms. Um, Better than familiar. Yeah. And, and um, in fact, I just got an email today that uh, the last one I had gotten, Primitiva was now harassing them. But I just got another email today saying he'd worked it out. Oh, good. So there's some sort of compromise. Whether that means he's paying her rent, I don't know. It might be, but um, if but not compromise, at least an arrangement of some sort. Something, yeah. yeah but long and the short of it, it, like Junior, the the thief, um, he had rescued one of the brothers many times, or a few times at least, in bar brawls. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. So I mean, they're that kind of friendly. Wow. Um, but in a way that I trust these guys. Yeah. And, um, and as long as like some sort of arrangements made, I'm happy. Um, so the hostel can open up. And I think, um, I mean, I shut down the hostel because I felt it was unsafe to to host people there. It wasn't just for my safety. It was for anyone that I'm hosting there. I can't like open a place up and be like, yeah, there are guys that might show up with guns, but don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. You still got your money. It's unlikely. Still paying me, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, and I think that's different. I, I'm comfortable with having these guys reopen it because they're local. Yeah. Uh, and they'll know how to manage and handle that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know. My suspicion, and maybe it's personal, is that those guys were tied to Junior, the ones last August with mm-hmm. the guns. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Dave doesn't believe that at all. The guys in the hostel now? Or. No, 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 no. The. Um, 
the the guy the the robbers yeah in August were tied to Junior oh, tied sorry. to Junior yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry about that no and so <laughs> if they were mm-hmm. then I think the, assuming friendly relations continue between them and Junior. Uh, especially since they're of the same generation, which I think is important because Junior's ripping off his own mother right. and ripping off his grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he would not rip off his own friends. He's a real jewel. Ain't he? Yeah. Actually, my friend Lorelai had an interesting thought. So Lorelai is the holder of the LLC that we have that binds us together as a group that owns the land. She's out in Denver. Um, <clears throat> she had a suggestion because I was talking with her recently about this whole problem with Primitiva. And I was saying, yeah, I don't know. I think I might, in the four years, end up handing over the land to her. If that, mm. if everything seems right and checks out and feels good, I would feel good doing that. And after like a day or two after that visit, she had had some time to think about it, I guess, and, and said, I don't think that's right. I don't think you should hand it over to her. What I think you should do is help heal Junior, if you can, and become kind of a, your own personal Peace Corps. <laughs> And I know you're rolling your eyes on that one. But no, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. But this came from Lorelai. This came from Lorelai. Okay. You know Lorelai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. She's about as crass as you are. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I that's why the Gringo Messiah stuff kills me. I don't I don't get it. Well, the idea was well, one, I can't be connected to it. Can't be connected to to that effort. I mean, right. I can't be visibly connected to right. it at least. Right. I can support, I can say like yeah, I mean like I'm not going to give him a job at the hostel. Right. Because that puts everyone else in danger. Yeah. Um, I honestly have no idea how this could happen or if it would even be just well beyond my ability, my reach, and could do damage. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the idea was um, essentially he's just going to continue to be a menace, right? Yeah. He's coming out of... So in the same idea of how I thought about the the robbers... Who were there. Mm-hmm. Now, Junior's more like the enthusiastic guy who didn't get a gun. Right. Um, but I think it's... And I, I wrote, when I wrote this out to the partners, to, to Julia, to Dave, um, like proposing the idea, I was very clear to mention this is like incredibly idealistic and probably well beyond our reach. But if we're going to try and do any kind of project down there, then that one seems like the only worthwhile one <laughs> and i and i really like i said i have no idea how it could how you could do it but it, in a sense like i don't know creating a job or creating the, the what lorelei was getting into was like the the psychology and what is the where's the root of the anger which my my impression of it is you know has to root back to his his dad dying when he's 12 Maybe it goes further back than that. He could have been molested by the neighbor. He I mean, could have. you don't know. Is it any number of things? No, it's true. No, I mean, I mean, and that's what I'm saying. I'm coming from a space that Well, you I have don't. to understand that, though, in order to address it. Right. You know, you can't just be nice to the kid. It well, no, no, and that's not what it would... <clears throat> yeah, I agree with you. You can't... You can't... Handouts are, are one thing that I am firmly against. Yeah. Especially now. Yeah. Right. Especially with my, my interaction with the village on the way out. Yeah. Um, that's what throws me into the confusion. I just see, I guess I just see a problem and I like solving problems. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. You got the name the friar for a reason. And I used to call him, I thought he had a Jesus complex, a Messiah complex, really wanting to save everybody. 
And I, I, I see this as, as, as part of that dentist doctrine thing I was talking about, where you can do anything you want to help this kid, to try to get him on track, get his life on track so he's not a little criminal. If he wants to be a fucking criminal, he's going to be a criminal. And any efforts you put into him, is going to, you're either going to have to sit in the ditch with him or he's going to take energy and effort away from something that could be productive. If he doesn't want to save himself, I don't understand how. I appreciate the the altruistic nature of this and trying to. I, I really do, and I'm not, I'm not saying that facetiously at all. Right. But it seems like uh, the kid's got to do it himself. He doesn't seem like the kind of kid really wants to do that. He no, he does. He does have to do it himself. But I, I guess we're okay. You look at the state of the world, right? If we want to, <laughs> right? Let's go global <laughs> on this. Let's do it. And it's and it's just so lost and so fucked up. I mean, it's like what we were saying this morning, of just like. Yeah, I have a little bit of hope, but it's so yeah slim. sausage party hope. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and and um, well, let's and let's. So what are you going to do? You're going to just drop it and well, and do nothing, or try or try and put effort through. Let's let's take it back to, to complete that thought. When I when I said I have a little bit of hope, right. I have a, a little tiny bit of hope, but it has to start with the individual. It yep. has to start with each of us. On an, and we were t- having the conversation that was that was in the last podcast about if there's going to be any sort of coming together, any sort of uh, reunification of at least American society, seeing each other as as sort of an American family again, rather than combatants on a ideological battlefield. We have to sort of work to start to see things as they are and start with a common base. Basic, basic sense of facts to have a real conversation to begin compromise. And that starts with the individual. In right. other words, each individual having the capacity and the willingness to sit down and try to see things for themselves as they really are, right? Rather than just getting stuck stuck in these echo chambers. That ties into Junior because he's the guy that's got to have this sort of come to Jesus or come to Chris uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of a moment with himself mm-hmm. where he realizes he's got to make changes. So you can go do all this, but you can't heal him. That's I think that's the trigger. No, word. and that's not what I'm thinking that I can do. Well, I, what I what I'm I guess what I see is what I like to uh, about the the phrasing of the you become somebody's personal peace score is like I'm not addressing what I I it would be totally worth worthless to for me to try and help him out, right? Mhm. Personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? He's sure. going to be resistant to yeah, everything, and yeah. he'll probably just stab me in the gut. Probably. Right. So, but I guess, think about him as an emerging, like, ex-con, right? Was still with the mm-hmm. intent to, like, oh, great, now I can get back into selling drugs and robbing stores again. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's, he's kind of got that dynamic of, um, it's it's like a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing, where it's kind of glorified for him. And that gives him his street it's machismo, cred. man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got all that going on. Um, and again, this is why I'm saying, like, I don't really know how to do this, and I don't really know if I'm gonna do this. But yeah. I think I see this one bad seed that's in the village, and there's a lot of them in yeah. that village. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of them strewn around the world. But I see this one person that I have a personal thread to, right? Mostly through hate, and. If there was a way that you could create an environment where he can at least step away from hurting people, mm-hmm. whether or not he gets out of crime, I don't care. Right. Uh, if he's still selling drugs, whatever. Right. Is not slashing an eight-year-old's face, mm-hmm. or he starts getting some sort of respect for somebody. Right. Hopefully himself. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And uh, that's the only lead that I have to go on is to foster some sort of environment around him that he can step away from needing to slash at people or, you know, like needing that violent reaction. Mm -hmm. And if that could change, right, if if that could be created, and again, I don't know how, don't give me that look. <laughs> no, yeah, you don't know that look just yet. <laughs> well, I'm just saying yeah, like, yeah. you know, it, it it's not something that I'm saying, you, you get where I'm coming from. I'm just saying if that could change the impact, imagine the impact that if he could make just that shift uh-huh. to to have some sort of respect around him for others, mm-hmm. right? Whether or not he stops robbing people, I don't know. Right. But if there's a shift there that that happens and he's less chaotic and he's less like flailing about and thrashing and, yeah. and you know, killing everyone in his way, because mm-hmm. he's just going to get worse at this point. Yeah, I, I expect him dead. Well, I expected him dead a while ago. Yeah. I didn't think he'd make it through prison. I'm surprised he did. It speaks volumes that he did. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And and yeah, and that's a, a build up now. He's like a level five. Right. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> do you have a D character yet? Yeah, he does. He's level five. <laughs> Is that uh, a level? I don't know anything about D. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um but uh Did you win this week, by the way? Yeah. Okay. Um No, I'm saying then. I don't know. I just think that that could radiate out. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. I, I mean this genuinely. I appreciate the concern and the altruistic nature of it. Mm-hmm. The trigger word for me was heal. Right. Well, you can heal. You can't heal anybody. Right. Uh, and I, I would, I would, I would amend that if I saw any indication that he wanted it. Right. I was reading this Marcus Aurelius book that was on on the table. You saw that out there, Meditations. Right. And one of the first pages, he learned from his father or something or one of his teachers that when you have an altercation or a conflict with someone, mm-hmm. as soon as if you see that person take a step toward making amends, you meet him halfway. So if I were to see I him... I do agree with that. Yeah, I do too. And if, you, if I were to see him even take a tiptoe step, in that direction, I'd be all about it. But at this point, what I think you're doing is I think you're trying to uh, psychologically terraform mm-hmm. to a degree where you're like you're trying to remotely create this environment where he's going to flourish, sprout. Uh, I'm not trying to be obnoxious. I just I know. You, well, it's difficult. You're not sitting to on in, this. You're sitting in front of me, so I <laughs> on have this to be. Topic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's it's almost like you're trying to create this garden in which he's going to thrive, and he he you can't. He has to. He in my in my view. Right. He has to be the one to do this. And I, 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 will, I will also add that this is the look that I was giving you, was that why do it there? I mean, there are so many people here that you could put that effort towards mm-hmm. here in your own backyard. You know, it's the till the soil thing where you could, if you really want to make, you'll make exactly the same change in the world. You'll do it at home. Well, and that's, I mean, that is why I'm here. Huh? I mean, that is why I'm here. I'm coming back here to do do the same right. kind of work yeah, that yeah. I was doing in Peru. I thought you were giving me the here. Messiah thing again. No, like, no, here no, in no, this yeah. existential I've come sense. to heal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, like I said, the only reason that I'm thinking on Junior for this is that he's probably literally the worst person I know. And I have a personal connection yeah. to him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it's admirable. I'm not saying that sarcastically. Yeah. It is. I recognize the yeah. the completely unrealistic nature of this as well, and I'm not intending to drain my energy on this project mm-hmm. if we even do it. Yeah. I mean, like, I got Dave's the other, like, super idealistic one 
amongst us in that group. And he also wrote back saying like, I think that's a great idea. I have no ideas on this whatsoever. And I don't even know if we should even put energy into it. Yeah. (laughs) So we're all kind of on the same page. Another thing, another thought I have, Mm -hmm. and again, it goes back to some of the stuff you and I have batted around for 10 years at Mm -hmm. least. And that how much is it, how much of it is about him and how much of it is to, so you can say to yourself egocentrically, I did this for him. This one person, you know, is it, is it, yeah, I is there an element to that, you think? I don't feel that in myself, but I do, from the selfish end of things, I recognize it that I'm trying to protect my property. That's even worse. <laughs> yeah, materialism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I do feel that in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see the, I see the essence of, of, um, because another thing I thought about, I thought about this the other day when, because of the whole like work in your own backyard thing. Yeah. And <laughs> in some ways, my backyard is scattered all over the place. Not in some ways, just about every way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just did a, he flew, you flew back to Seattle two weeks ago, right? Yeah. And spent a week in Seattle. You spent a week in Denver, a few days in Denver. And then you went to New York to see somebody and now you're here. Yeah. Right. No, I went to New York for a bagel. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see anybody mm-hmm. when I was there. But I'm I not did. even shocked. I know. Yeah. But you know, you wanted to go. It was also the cheaper flight from Denver. But Well, yeah, but you, you also. You I know. wanted to see my old neighborhoods. Right. I wanted to see my old city. Yeah. And you have family in, in Seattle. Yeah. So, yeah. But you lived in Seattle as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, this is, a, I guess, uh, maybe this conversation will be meandering from here on out. But we, we, you know, both of us, to a certain degree, you much more than me. But mm. over the last uh, 10 or 12 years, I mean, we've both been all over the country. Right. For very short periods of time. You have been down in, in Peru. And yeah, there aren't a lot of uh, really solid roots dug deeply into the ground anywhere. Right. At this point, anyway. And it seems like you're moving back towards that. And God Hopefully. knows how this happened with she and I going back to, I, I said, man, I'd never go to fucking live in Michigan again. You and know, we're kind of moving back to the roots as well. But that's, what's know? funny is that, yeah. I mean, a lot of people that I'm talking to who are cut loose and drifting, Julia, yeah. she's going back to England. Alex, he's going back to England. Mm-hmm. He's been in Peru 16, 17 years. Julia has been floating up and down South America. Like I said, for since 2011, 20, no, 2012. Yeah. And is now going back to Brighton. Uh, me, I'm fuck. I never thought I would be returning to Massachusetts ever. Yeah, ever. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, I just see a lot of people going home. Yeah. What do you make of that? Um. Like in general, or you want to get in my like? I, I'm going I, spiritual. I'm leaving, that <laughs> I'm leaving that wide the fuck open, man. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just the time for everyone to go home and 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 get their. I don't know, grow some roots or something. I don't know what it is, but I mean, for me, I feel like I'm going back to heal the last, uh, like my shadows and Mm -hmm. my, you know, like I don't have a sense of community. My sense of community is over email. Yeah. You know, my friends are scattered all over the place. (laughs) So that's true. You know, all my connections are are through like long email conversations or, or visits. You know, I had a great visit with Lorelai. It was like three hours. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I got to see her daughter, Izzy, who I've known since she was 15 months. She's now 14 and seen her since she was nine, you know, and, um, and to me, I mean, like on the broader spectrum of things, I think like we were talking about, I think disconnection is, is one of the biggest problems 
is the one of the roots of the largest problems that we have going on globally. Disconnection or depersonalization? Do you see those two things as the same thing related? You see them basically as synonyms of each other. Yeah, essentially. I mean, like, yeah, you could use them differently poetically, but (laughs) I think there's slight connotations maybe. But yeah, I think that that depersonalization comes from disconnect. Yeah. So I'd I'd still root disconnect at the at the basis of that problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we're more connected now than ever. You know, which is which is kind of a, a weird paradox, I guess, if you look at it that way. Because All right. so, yeah, then if you're going to throw that in there mean, with depersonalize, no, 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 I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying like if you're going to toss that in as the depersonalization, yeah, I still think there's disconnect in those connections. Yeah, yeah, I, which I, I guess is the depersonalization. Well, the, the conversations we had in Peru when I was really on the digital detox stuff mm-hmm. was that these uh, connections aren't they're they're artificial you can have all the email conversations with somebody you want and you can talk to them on Facebook and blah 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 mm-hmm. blah but that is an artificial synapse it's not the real thing it's not like you and I sitting here looking at, at each other looking each other in the eye and reading you know body you know I'm giving you a look and right, you can yeah, see yeah. it you know yeah, yeah. you don't you don't get that over email yeah, they don't get it over the podcast either, and they only know you gave me a look because I said something exactly. about it. Exactly. Yeah, I'm taking full <laughs> advantage of that. <laughs> well, no, actually, this is an interesting thing. So, so I jumped right back on online dating on my way back here. So. Yeah, right, right. yeah. <laughs> and um, I've been chatting with this girl and uh, having really cool, in-depth, multi-page long emails back and forth mm-hmm. to each other. And uh, she's like, oh, that's cool. I can't wait till you get back and meet in person. Do you think it'll be like the same as as these emails? Or do you think we'll keep up this level of rapport, however she phrased it? And I was like, no. You know, like I've been through this process a lot. I've had really good connections with people on on emails, whether through dating or whether through just chatting with people or whatever. Yeah. But if you're like, like with this girl, I've connected with her only digitally so far right Mm -hmm. it's only been email conversations back and forth and it's a lot easier for me and she said something like that i think a lot about these kinds of conversations over emails is more like journaling where someone's going to read it it's kind of like harry potter with like tom riddle in the in the (laughs) journal you know you write into the you know you're 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 journaling into an email and then you're getting feedback who's tom riddle voldemort okay yeah continue yeah the spoiler for harry potter too (laughs) Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah. yeah i don't hide the geek <laughs> oh i can exploit that um but yeah, yeah so anyway so but it, it is it's a lot like journaling to yeah. somebody else and you're getting feedback right you yeah. don't i don't feel like i'm it, it feels weird to say i don't feel like i'm talking to her yeah but when i'm really getting into an idea I kind of connected with her, but I'm more like I'm exploring an idea and I'm curious to hear her thoughts on it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm having a conversation like this in person, I feel connected to the person. Right. Because you feel like you're really bouncing the idea back and forth. One, because you're talking back and forth. Yeah, you actually are. You're having a conversation. But even on like Facebook chat or something like that where you are bouncing back and forth. Yeah. And even that's different than there's no a regular... verbal cues. There's no there's no visual cues. There's no tone. There's no inflection. It's not really. It's it's a it's a simulated artificial interaction. Yeah, you're exchanging words, and yeah, you're exchanging thoughts, but you're not mm-hmm. having a human interaction. It's got an electronic interface between you. You can't do it. But I also think the difference there. So I communicate better in writing, right? Mm-hmm. So because 
I'm yeah. slower. Yeah. I don't think very fast. <laughs> I mean, I know this about me. I When I'm writing out emails, I can sit there and I can think about it. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm writing chat or text back and forth to somebody, I don't need to respond right away. I can right. sit there for five minutes and think about what I'm actually going to say. Right. Right? Yeah. And so in arguments, I usually lose because I'm... I'll like get battered down and like uh, and, and like <laughs> yeah. fry because I can't think of a response fast enough of because I want to consider all uh, all options. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm trying to take in the perspective of everything, yeah. which I can do through writing and I can do that through through chatting through. So so there is something different. I don't think it's it's a useless medium, but I don't think yeah. it's it definitely not the same. And so when this girl said like, oh, it'll be great, you know, like hopefully this is the same in person and. I, I was immediate, very specific of like, don't assume that because you're you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Right. Like, this is great because we've gotten all the weird questions out of like, oh, what'd you do 10 years ago? You know, like all Mm -hmm. the, all the questions that you just kind of bullshit your way through. So it's nice to have that out of the way, to have a foundation to just go in and, and enjoy and play and, and bat around whatever you're going to talk about. But it's totally different if you're face to face. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think face-to-face is better, my opinion, but I don't think the others are useless. Yeah, um, they're inferior. I, I In my opinion, I, I think they are. I, yeah. I, I don't think, like I said, I, I agree with you. I don't think they are useless. Right. But, yeah, inferior, I think, is a good word. Yeah. Substandard. And if you're going to put it in, in, in uh, comparative terms to meeting face-to-face and having a, you know, looking you in the eye and having a, a real conversation, I don't think there's any comparison. Right. And that's how you find out who the person is, you know. Well, me, like coming from me, like someone who's not, I don't like conflict. It's easier for me to have the conversations in chat. I can speak my mind easier. And go away. Huh? In, in chat or in... Uh... Like in chatting, like you know, like if you're texting back and forth or if you're chatting on like a Facebook messenger right, kind of okay. thing or something yeah. like that where you're, yeah. you can't just like, I mean, you can just drop out just like in a conversation and just turn around and leave. No, but... you set the phone <laughs> down, go out and make a sandwich and think about you yeah, know, how exactly. you think he's going to respond. And then you can come back and have your pre-planned. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just, well, yeah. and I can put more thought into what I'm saying. And, and like if someone's being aggressive towards me in a conversation, I can say more of what I'm meaning. Whereas when I'm talking, I tend to blurt shit out. You know, and then have to like backtrack and then they exploit that. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas if I'm having a conversation. Has it always been this way with you? Yeah. I think it's gotten better, but. The thought entered my head if it was uh, something that's sort of taken taken life because of the digital age. Because we're online so much and we spend so much time writing email and and texting and chatting and everything. I wonder if it's just sort of maybe a... uh, uh, deterioration of the verbal skills. No, it's always been something that like that with you. No, it was worse when I was younger because I had far less confidence in myself. Mm-hmm. So now I can, I feel like I've explored ideas enough to like more confidently say things. Yeah, but I'm still, if I'm in a a conversation with someone aggressive, mm-hmm. then I'm basically grabbing on ideas that I've already come up with like before the yeah. conversation has happened. Yeah, and I'm trying to like. Eh, communicate yeah, right. that and then explain it to myself of to remember why I believe that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. then I that's where I get lost. Yeah. Whereas in texting or something like that, I can I can remember it a little bit bo- better, you know, and mm-hmm. and not just spit shit out that you know half a second after it's out of my mouth, I'm like because uh, I, I have think, to type it first. I don't think you're I don't think you're uh, unique in this. No, way I don't think all. so. I yeah. think a lot of people. I mean, and I wonder I I wonder if that that contributes to this depersonalization. 
where people don't look each other in the eye and they because they're so mm-hmm. they much prefer the the digital avatar where they can sit there and they can construct their retorts right well and a lot of edit themselves i think a lot of people are also just trying to win oh of course yeah that's a whole whereas i don't feel like when i'm having an argument i'm not i lose Uh, often because uh, i'm not trying to win i'm trying to understand well that's why we're friends (laughs) not kidding exactly i've said i've said this a hundred times i mean it's you and i have different ideas on truth we've talked about that and probably will again uh but at least we're trying we disagree vehemently on some things, mm-hmm. and that's great because well, we that's, can discuss I'd, them because we're trying to get it right. I would say that that's the traits of most of my friends. Yeah, like those are the friends that I keep close. Which are is the peculiar ones who because are most trying. of your friends hate me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> true. I know it. Is. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> Hi, Chris's friends. I know you're not listening to this. You're not going to ever put this up anywhere so anybody can hear it. I get it. If you found yourself here, though, I love you. I've always loved you, Chris's friends. I don't know why you hate me. But yes, I do. I like I want I like to be around people who are trying to understand what's going on. I do too, yeah. You know what I mean? And if I was just trying I could like spit shit out just to try and win an argument. Yeah. But I just don't see the point in that. Yeah. Okay, I think that's uh yeah, we've known each other it's funny because my fifteen years? Uh fourteen this year. Be fourteen in uh August. I guess the email. So thirteen basically, yeah. Thirteen and a half. I'm trying to think back. We left Michigan 14 years ago in like two weeks. Uh, so it's actually at the end of this month, it's going to be exactly 14 years, and we're going back. So like right in the same week. Nice. And I ran into you. I ran into your blog uh, about six months after we left the first time. So you're kind of bookending with the exception of that Florida uh, residential abortion we had. Right. Uh, the, the entirety of this fucking 14-year wander. I guess from state to state to state and everywhere else. Yeah. So it's kind of kind of interesting, and I don't know of anybody else who I've been friends with throughout. I mean, I've had friends like, but it's always like the you know, like Tyler Durden said, they're, they're the uh, not Tyler Durden, the other guy in uh, Fight Club, the single serving friend thing, you know, where you. Oh like, yeah, he I didn't have here. a name. He was Tyler Durden. Sorry, what, spoiler. What What are they? What was his name in the movie though? Ed Norton. Yeah. They never say specifically because his name is Tyler Durden. I've seen that movie 50 times, <laughs> and I never realized that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's why Brad Pitt is yeah. Tyler Durden, is because it's... <laughs> it just blew my fucking mind. It's one of my favorite <laughs> movies, and I never... Anyway. Yeah, but it's like, uh, like I live here now, and I've got these friends now, because yeah. I'm here now, yeah. but when I move, I think the reason that that's happened is because we relate to each other on a, on a level, philosophically existentially, but it's all based in trying to get to some semblance as close as we can to the truth and getting it right rather than sitting here trying to win. Yeah, I think and, I think we listen to each other yeah, closely. Yeah, sometimes it takes really <clears throat> meandering routes to get there. <laughs> but I don't think it's ever not. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's, that's the nature of it, though, right? <laughs> yeah. If it was easy, everybody'd fucking do it. It's not. Right. You know, and I think that's, that's, that's compli- I, I think it's a compliment to you. And uh, I think it's actually a weird compliment to myself, yeah. which I don't get very often. Way to go, Todd. There you go. Ah! Got to pee. Third cup of tea. I know where you're at. Yeah, I'm on my fifth cup of coffee. Well, it's huge, but...
probably like the third one of those. I've got like a gallon trough of coffee in here that I fill up throughout the course of the day. It's not a visual medium. And uh, I think I'm on the third one since we've been in here. <laughs> so anyway, we were talking earlier about uh, closing of the, of the Hoff. We got a little off track there for a second, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to kind of rewind a little bit and talk about the extraction from Peru a little bit because you've been down there. You were part of the, uh, the Yupa community. For better part of five years, arguably, yeah. Yeah, and when you decided to close, it was a little unexpected, I think, uh, at least from my perspective. <laughs> you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was I don't entirely want entirely unexpected. Not the closing. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. I obviously that was, but I think it was more. I don't know. I don't know if I want to use the the phrase lack of support. It was almost like I, I expected, like Ermenia. Yeah, uh, which was she was a uh, local woman who worked for you for a number of years, right? Her, yeah, her uh, and, hired her in July of 2015. Her and uh, Norma. Norma and, had been there four years. Yeah, and the thing that sticks out in my head. Five uh, years. The thing that stuck out in my head was when you were packing up to leave. And it seemed to me, and maybe I'm mis- misremembering this a little bit, maybe my uh, recollection's not as uh, clear as it should be, but I remember you telling me that when you were there, she came to help you pack up, and she was like trying to grab cables. There was one disappointment in Armenia. Mm-hmm. But it was significant and it was huge to me, even though it was mm. teeny. So the week before, I don't know if you remember, the week before we decided to close because I had, I made the decision to close within an hour, mm-hmm. right? With mm-hmm. the emails and all that yeah, stuff yeah. that we talked about before. Trivia, right? Yeah. So yeah. I had no intention of, of closing anytime at all. I intended to pass it along to different managers while I came back to the States and kind of phased right. my way out. So there had been issues with Norma before mm-hmm. and so i had actually fired norma after five years of working for me f- for her stealing um which was a surprise mm-hmm. it was a, kind of a surprise i mean norma's always kind of had shitty attitude but we loved her at the same time um, <laughs> um she's kind of like that that grumpy friend that you kind of stick around with exactly <laughs> So, so it was only Armenia there. And one, she like talking about support as far as friends and and community goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I told her, I was not happy. I was not looking forward to telling her that, oh yeah, shit, we're going to be closing down. Yeah. Um, Because that's her job, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And she makes, you know, she's struggling with money all the time and she's got Mm -hmm. three kids and uh, one little one is in school. And, uh, um, and when I told her we were closing down, she was like, that's good. Like basically like that's yeah. Right decision, <laughs> you know? Cause I think she also was feeling that, that danger sense. And yeah. she helped me. She packed up the entire kitchen for me. She packed up the entire living room for me along with, uh, Astrid, the volunteer, mm-hmm. um, while I was packing up other things in other cabins. So she was a huge help and I wanted to give her, um, like a severance pay, I guess, yeah, yeah. you know, and I didn't need any kitchen stuff. So I told her, you know, like one, I'm not sure if I'm going to be renting this to somebody else, to some local people. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't pack up this, this, and this like plates and things like that. Like, but other stuff, like feel free to grab it, take mm-hmm. whatever you want. Yeah. Um, we had just bought a big load of groceries because of new year's and right. we didn't get nearly as many people eating as we thought yeah. so i was like take the groceries and i gave the, her like 
I don't know, a couple weeks extra pay. Anyways, it all sounded good. And she was very helpful in that way. What happened was, and what you're thinking of, and which was a really big surprise to me, so was once everything was packed up and I had put everything that I was taking for myself to, to send back up here to the States, that was clear that that was my stuff that that was not open for mm-hmm. taking. That right. was, I want that. I'm, you know. <clears throat> it's my shit. Yeah, it's yeah. my shit, yeah. <laughs> you know. And that was the very last day uh, we were putting last minute stuff in there or something like that. And Armenia was taking a tin out of there. That's what it was. Yeah. And it, so it wasn't anything major. It wasn't anything sure. horrible, but it was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, and it was just a simple tin. It was a tin that I, you know, if she wanted a tin, you know, I could have gotten it for like yeah. seven soles, you know, like $2 mm-hmm. down in town. Right. And I let her keep it, but I was just, I don't know. That was, it was like a real letdown. Yeah. It's like if you're helping a friend move. You don't pick through and, their shit and take stuff out. Yeah. Or like, yeah. Or a friend, <laughs> yeah. Up here, if a friend was helping me move and like this, right? I'm yeah, helping you move. Chris to, is here helping me move. Right. Yeah. You're not picking through my stuff saying, right. hey, so I think if I'll I take was this. like, if I left and took your poncho, you know, yeah, right. or, or, or this box like of a mug out of the, yeah. out of the stuff and was just like, hee hee, you know, and just sort of snuck it out. No, you, you know, that, that would be really <laughs> shitty. Yeah. Even if it was like, yeah, just like a mug. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. And um and that was what hurt the most. That was like that was the biggest blow to me, actually. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, had Norma done it, I actually wouldn't have been surprised. Right, yeah. yeah. You she know, was taking the fact shit that anyway. Arminio has been <clears throat> such a good friend and such a big help and has this kind of grandmotherly non-conflict mm-hmm. kind of presence really happy positive presence around there yeah she's got like that grandma spirit you yeah, know like, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> she's just very nurturing and mm-hmm. tends to you and looks after. i mean the fact that she suggested that i should give norma also a severance thing was was very kind mm-hmm. you know yeah uh, i mean she didn't need to look out for norma mm-hmm. and and threaten me saying like oh no you know what and if you're gonna suggest that you know fuck the whole thing yeah you know <laughs> i mean i'm pretty confident that she didn't think that I, that was a risk or right. anything but yeah, yeah but i think what got me was it was that it was like anytime they've asked me for for days off mm-hmm. it, without hesitation it was just yeah sure you know like you yeah, know let's do it i'll cover it don't worry about it. Sure. You know, having birthdays were holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get double pay for that if you came in and worked. And other, if you took the day off, you got pay. And, yeah. Um, you know, and paying bills and school bills along the way when they needed help. And so, yeah, it just seemed that it was that on top of other things like um, um, the school that we work with uh, down in Yupa. Yeah. There were three girls in back in August who came up and, and they suggested, oh, they're really cute. They're like nine or something. They come up and said, last year, you guys brought us presents for Christmas. We'd like to do that again. Of course you would. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, all right, you know. Why not? Yeah. Let's do it. I like the initiative. You yeah. know, I like the idea that these girls are like, they're, they're, they were the class presidents and they wanted to do something nice in their reign of power and... And they came to us for help, and I thought that was sweet. So so I did. I got some money together, and when I came back down to Peru, I bought a bunch of toys. They gave me specifics on what they wanted and for who, and, mm-hmm. you know, they got a list of all the classmates. I asked, I asked them, get a list, how many boys, how many girls. Yeah, so anyway, so we did this whole thing. But with that, it was like they made a show of like, oh, well, Chris will hand out the toys, and he'll be Santa, you know, mm-hmm. and this whole thing, and... 
and that was sweet but then it was like well do you have something for my older sister or do you have something for the baby or do you have something for my nephew or my niece or yeah yeah and it was just like all right you know yeah, like yeah yeah, yeah, I, yeah i get it but i just i don't know it was like it was a a non-stop barrage of disappointment of asking after receiving and mm-hmm. and yeah there were thanks in there and i i could yeah. really care less about the thanks yeah, i didn't I really want to be yeah it seemed like you were sort of working to be a positive influence a positive force in that community and to me it seemed like they were more seeing you when you were getting to the point where things were winding down. And maybe it's just because it became more apparent because things were winding down, but it was almost like they were exploiting a resource. Yeah, they you know? were. Yeah, and <clears throat> Armenia was, the I think, the one that really sort of drove that point home, that you can't, in my view, and you, 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 can, you can speak volumes more to this than I can because you've spent time down there, but we've talked about this and I have a pretty good idea how, mm-hmm. you'll, how you'll take what direction you take it, that you cannot become part of that community. You're always going to be right. the gringo on the hill who's squatting on potentially what should be someone else's property who actually lives there. You know, and it re- reminds me a little right. bit of uh, when immigrants come to the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, they can do everything they, they can to assimilate themselves, integrate themselves into American culture, there's always going to be somebody there that says, you're fucking Mexicans, you know? Right. And it, it, I, <clears throat> I don't... Yeah, but it's different. Uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a difference there in the sense of a hundred years from now, let's say I stayed at the Hof, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So a hundred years ago in the U.S., yeah, had Irish, Italian, German immigrants... Yeah. Right. There's they, a racial component here, though. Irish. That, Italians, I know. Yeah. Where they integrated. Yeah. Right. You don't really look. People go around saying like, "Oh, I'm German. I'm Scottish. I'm right, whatever." Right, yeah. But yeah. You're American. They're American. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you still have obviously the black, Latino, mm-hmm. the racism, the Asian, whatever. You know, right. like the racial difference. Yeah. Right. Down in Peru, I could stay there a hundred years. And I, my grandkids would still be gringos. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's no integration there. Right. My friend Eric, the one I mentioned before who, who managed the way in, yeah. his father's French. Eric, came, Eric was born in Juarez. He grew up in Juarez. He's still considered a gringo there. Yeah. Right? Because he's blonde. Right. His brother and sister, they both look Peruvian. They're, they've got the dark hair, dark skin. Mm-hmm. And they fit in fine. But they're they're full-blooded siblings yeah right you know what i mean yeah it's almost a literal tribalism then yeah but because i think down in in peru and latin america there's basically kind of it's well it's not one race but it's It's more primarily one race i mean there are black people down there there are asian people down there actually there are even like there's white people down there who are who have been there for a long time chileans but Argentinians are they you I couldn't well yeah, yeah I mean that's down there but um yeah there's like some weird like German tribe that's kind of like <laughs> you don't have little mustaches <laughs> yeah no there, <laughs> there is there's some like weird like lost German tribe that that's been there for like four or five hundred years or something it's the Himmler family <laughs> right <laughs> I just Gubelianos the whole this all-inclusiveness thing, and I'm not taking this in a political direction at all. Right. I don't think. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I'll try not to. But it, it, it seems like that people have 
sort of a built-in tribalistic instinct where yeah. if you look different or you can't come from a different, I mean, you, like you said, you could be there a hundred years. Your, your, your descendants right. could be there in a hundred years and they're still not going to be fully accepted into the culture. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, look at minorities here. Blacks have been here since white people have been here. They're definitely not. But did that, know, how did, <laughs> I, a large component not accepting them. To, to keep it, I, I guess, on a uh, macro scale, as far as your experience goes, did you expect that? When you uh, opened the Hoff and you started to try to work with the community a little bit and you tried to, you know, meet the neighbor, you're talking earlier about right. buying milk from the neighbors and all that. How did you see, how did, how did it differ? How did the, 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 the reality differ at the end when you left mm-hmm. from your expectations when you went in? I don't think I had expectations when I went in. I think when I was there, when I first moved there, I mean, you got to understand I was coming out of hitching around for three years, two and yeah. a half years, yeah. whatever, you know. With, mm-hmm. Well, when you opened the Hof right. and you started working with the community, you had to have a reason why, you know, you did that or how you expected or hoped things would proceed. Yeah, I was hoping to, like, integrate into the community. Right. I always... Expectations was a bad word. I guess maybe what did you hope and how did the, the reality and the, uh, the end scenario when you left... Uh, a few weeks ago or two weeks ago, how did that differ from what you hoped would happen and why do you think that is? I think that change only really came about in the past month or two. That 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 shift of expectation or what happened. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. I think that was really, it was like January. Is it know? something you think changed or do you think it's something you saw? Mm, no, I think it... Mm, I don't know. I mean, I, I would say, let's see. Let me go back to 2012. I remember an important thing about, I, w- I was always very conscious of being a foreigner there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And in the beginning, it's exotic, right? You're, you're a tourist at first, so sure. you don't even think about yourself as a resident. Right. You, you just know that you don't belong, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, you're a tourist. You're an eloper. Yeah. Right. And then, then that's living at the inn. And the inn was a lot easier because you don't own the place. Mm-hmm. You can leave whenever, you know. It's, yeah. There's no commitment. And once I moved into the Hof, I was more aggressively moving my things down from the States. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, uh, that was when I started designing the course, uh, the permaculture course. And one of the big things there was I wanted to integrate the locals and that was more from a perspective of I wanted to, I wanted to, no, almost like a thanks, like thanks for hosting me kind of thing. Like I still felt like I was in a guest house, mm-hmm. you know, and and I had this sense that, yeah, I want to live here for the rest of my life. That was the impression I had from yeah. the moment I got to that area. Mm-hmm. And I had that for two years. Um, but I wouldn't say I integrated the locals to think that I would become one. I integrated them as a thank you for having me, you know, like almost like bringing wine to a dinner party. Right. You know, and I thought that they would be interested in the stuff that we had to teach. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they were. So let me, not to interrupt you, but you said you, you were looking, you thought you were going to live there for the rest of your life, right? At some point, but you weren't trying to integrate. Uh, I, I just knew that that wasn't possible. Even then, yeah. Well, I mean, I yeah, I'm not Peruvian. But you had a sense then, even then, that just because you weren't Peruvian, you wouldn't be able to integrate and be really become part of that community. Well, what I thought was, I thought that if my Spanish improved to the point where I was fluent, mm-hmm. which I never got to, 
um, that I could hang out more casually with people in the village mm-hmm. and make friends that way. And in that way, I'd be just as local as anywhere else I'd been, which is to say I'm not really local. I'm always from somewhere else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, that's normal for me. Yeah. I left Massachusetts when I was 18 and never returned and never had any intention of returning and yeah. always had wherever I was from that point on, I always had a place to say that I was from when people asked. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that wasn't anything new. I mean, moving to Denver, I moved right. to Denver in 2000 and you had native Coloradan stickers Jesus, everywhere. That's the stupidest shit I've ever seen. But it's a thing, <laughs> you know? know? And yeah. it was just as that. That was kind of the attitude that I had. Yeah. Um, What's your name? Sitting Bull. Is that your last name, Mister Native Coloradan? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, somebody fucking moved here, but asshole. Th- that was the attitude that I had moving to the Hoff. Yeah. Was Sorry, like you touched a nerve there. Yeah. The native thing. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Is yeah. like that was the attitude that I had when I got there. I was like, I can have friends here. I can have a home here. I can mm-hmm. be that. I'll be my own local. Well, again, though, this this sort of flies kind of in against your nature a little bit because you have such a and i know this about you because i've known you for a long time we've had Mm -hmm. conversations about it that you have such a drive and such an interest an acute interest in building community being part of community Mm -hmm. and i find it not not weird but i'm just i'm I'm confused as to why you would go someplace now i'm not questioning it i'm just mm -hmm. i'm just asking a question here why you would consider living in a place Mm -hmm. especially up there uh, where you're dependent upon the community, you're isolated up there. You're you're right. an hour's drive from Wara, right? <laughs> right. So why would you pick a place, considering your background, considering the geographic location you occupied, yet not feel like you could ever be part of the community? I felt like I would become part of the community in the same way that I did in Denver. Mm-hmm. Denver never felt like home to me either. Right. It always felt like a temporary home. Right. Mm-hmm. New York. Felt like home, but everyone's not from there. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. And so, uh, to me, that's familiar. Yeah. So, sure, I'm in some Indian village where I'm not from there either. But the idea, the, the initial <laughs> idea of building intentional community where you could, uh, you, know, you know, the the idea of the way in, I forget what you called it, it had a name, I think. Intentional uh, community? No, there was something, it seems like there was, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Did. Co- Kawimanti? No, no, no. no. There, when you when you went to, and you were first at the way when it was the ayahuasca retreat, yeah. Alex was talking about building this this intentional community with like a constitution and you yeah. know having like a that was Kawimanti. That was that was the name of it. Kawimanti was the name of the organization. We didn't have a name of the of I, the community itself. I thought you did. Well, no. like I said, it doesn't matter. So I guess I'm trying to get to the psychology of your your uh, passion for community, right? And this disconnect that I see, maybe it's not there. I'm just trying to get figure it out and, and uh, sort of reconcile it in my head. Do you think that maybe building that community around either the Hoff or the initial idea you had with Alex mm-hmm. sort of compensated for that, the, the fact that you wouldn't be able to integrate really into Yupa and the surrounding area? No, I think it's an interesting psychological thing because I think my passion for community <clears throat> comes from not having it. You know what I mean? But you don't have it intentionally. Which I think... Huh? <laughs> you don't have it intentionally. Right. But that's, it's almost like a psychosis. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I, and I saw that a lot in people. Yeah. Uh, people coming through the Hoff, they loved it because they're like, oh, it's like family up here. It's like a community. Like you got welcomed in. Yeah. You, you know, what you felt when you came and visited in, in 2015. Two yeah. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. And so, yeah, I never, I, was longing for community just like everyone else was longing for community. 
um, because I kept rejecting it and yeah, yeah. moving on yeah, yeah. to the next place where it was better. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a lot of this call to come home. Yeah, is um, it's not out there. Maybe there's nothing here. exotic about going home, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's no. There's no like paradise. The grass isn't greener over here. It's uglier. I was thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, you know, you know what restlessness might be, and then uh, maybe I'm getting off on a tangent here. But re- restlessness. I felt this myself. I mean, I've this is like the seventh state we've lived in in the last 14 years. I've lived in every part of the fucking country now except the Pacific <clears throat> Northwest, which you've covered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I, it, it it occurred to me, I think either last night or this morning, that this restlessness was all about changing the wallpaper. Yeah. You know, and you get there, the wallpaper's neat for a minute. You mm-hmm. still took yourself with you. Yeah. And then you got the urge to change the fucking wallpaper again. And at some point, and this didn't happen consciously, I didn't wake up one morning and be like, ah, arr. but we've said it a hundred times, probably 10 since you've been here in mm-hmm. the last 20, 28 hours or whatever it's been, mm-hmm. that it doesn't fucking matter where I live. Right. You can change the wallpaper the scenery, the landscape, all you fucking want to, you're still taking you with you. Mm-hmm. And it's not ever going to change. Right. The the individual, I think, that has to come to terms with itself and where it is. Right. And I wonder, because this is really fascinating, that your home, I never foresaw, like I said earlier, I never foresaw us going back to Kalamazoo, back right. to Michigan. But it's really interesting that that seems to be happening. With a lot of people. With a lot of people. Yeah, not just you and I. It's interesting right. simultaneously with the two of us, obviously. Right. But I, I'm seeing that, again, you pointed that out earlier. A lot of fucking people are doing They're getting back to their foundations. Oh, yeah, their roots. Yeah, but it's not But it's not the roots, I don't think. I think it's getting in tune with who you are and not running from it anymore and getting, and getting around where you can actually build that sense mm-hmm. of, even if you don't call it community <clears throat> consciously, um, but you can build that that structure around you. Well, and I wonder, like this, all this shit that's going on in the world today, like the U.S. in particular, this division, this separation. There's there's a starvation for community. I think you know, there's a starvation for connection that I don't think people are aware of. They just want it. I'm going to take that in another direction. Okay. Do you think that starvation for community is the uh, maybe a trigger, a cause? carcinogen of sorts that leads us into this sort of uh, mob mentality where we surround each other with only agreeable voices this sense of even if it's only an ideological community maybe yeah i mean maybe that's i don't think that's working and i think that's what's exacerbating the problem is like you know when you feel like you have an idea on how to solve that gnawing problem that you can't solve yeah and so you do one thing that you don't recognize is actually exacerbating that problem Mm mm-hmm but you keep pushing at it because you think it's fixing it? Yeah, it's drinking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fair. And then at some point you realize that this is really the problem, not the solution to the problem. It's just sort of numbing it. And right. Well, and I think you've hit on it with the whole like Facebook friend thing, mm-hmm. connection, where it's like people think they're solving. Well, I don't think they think they're solving their problem of community. No. I, I think they think they have a community right. through Facebook that is thin and flimsy. Yeah. It's it's there, but it's... Art, it's like, artificial. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. tissue paper, you know? Yeah. And it's nothing in comparison to real-life friends right? who are around you. And that's mm-hmm. something that I haven't been to a lot of people 
to most people. It's absolutely true. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I've been someone who passes through often, who yeah. visits often, who, and then vanishes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like I lack that connection. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of strong friendships if I'm there. Right. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I have yeah, a lot of people who would back me up on stuff. Yeah. Um, but I don't have a lot of people confiding in me anymore or calling when something's going on or, yeah. you know, that kind of thing that I would have like when I- You don't have in, it. If you <clears throat> had an intimate, personal, face-to-face relationship where right. you were you well, were like when, there. when I like last, like in Denver, living mm-hmm. in Denver, you know, when I was there for- a year and there I managed to make some close friends like Sufi and mm-hmm. you know, you and I reconnected there, yeah. but Sufi was actually living there and Lorelai yeah. was living there and right. it was like, they, saw could, each other. they could pop by. And they you could, could go out drinking, you go do karaoke. Exactly. If you've never seen Chris do karaoke, by the way, we're going to be in, you know what I want to do? I'm <laughs> going to advertise this. Yes, I am actually because, <laughs> oh, this is fucking perfect. I didn't even think about this, but uh, <laughs> we're going to be leaving mass Thursday, right? Next Thursday. Uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah, we're recording on Friday night, the uh, the sixteenth, I guess it is today, right? Uh, we'll be leaving <clears throat> Mass next Thursday. Week, yeah. yeah, and then we'll. My buddy Bobby, my old radio friend, I'm going to give Bobby a plug. He is at uh, Miller's Time Out in Battle Creek every Friday or Saturday. He does karaoke. Nice. I'm taking you there. All right. I'll take you there. I'm down. Oh, and you're going to sing if you've never seen. The Friar Chris Dyson do karaoke. It is a sight to behold. It's a wonderment. It will make you think that he has the power of Jesus inside of him when he sings because <laughs> uh, it's incredible. So Miller's time out next weekend. If you're in Michigan, stop by, say hi. You can buy me a drink. Yeah, me too. Anyway. Hopefully it didn't knock us completely off. But uh, what were we talking about? Community, uh, yeah, community and Facebook and and the the oh, and you were asking why why would I settle in Peru? Yeah, uh, when I'm isolating myself. Yeah, when you couldn't integrate yourself. If just taking the premise you left that you knew from the beginning, or you had an an inclination from the beginning that you would never be able to fully integrate into the community because you're a gringo, right? right? So to me, it seemed weird that you would choose to do that with your, you know, your passion for community. And I was wondering if the intentional community stuff at at the weigh-in or the community you were building around the Hoth, as transient as it was, Maybe was the well that was the community. Yeah, that was the, the substitute for that. The community at the Hof. I mean, we had resident people like Julia living there for a while. Whitey was living there for a while. Joey was living there for a while. You know, we had various people who would stay for months, uh, up to a year. I don't think anyone stayed longer than a year. Cat and I were living there for a while when mm-hmm. we got engaged. Yeah, I'm a very routine person. Yeah, and I get really bored with my own routine mm-hmm. quickly. That's why the walk was really nice for me because it was like changing. I had a routine every day and by the nature of it, the scenery changed. Right. right? And the people changed. Mm -hmm. So it was the same with the Hoff where I had a routine every day. I had things to look after, take care of whatever. Yeah. It would change daily. Yeah. And the scenery stayed the same. So that was a novelty for me. That's the longest I've lived in my adult life by far. Yeah. Yeah. From what? June 2012 until. Five and a half years. Yeah. So five and a half years. Second to that, the longest I've lived anywhere, I think, is 13 months. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And in an area, in one area, the longest I've lived You're going to be, be 42 here for long, right? Yeah, in April. Yeah, yeah. But New York would be the longest area that I've lived in. So there I switched apartments about every eight months at least. Yeah. But 
I lived in New York for three or four years. Mm-hmm. And there I was there for five and a half. Yeah. And even then, towards the end, I was coming and going. But I still considered it home, a home base. Yeah. So there, it was like I had a stable place. And what was changing was the people coming and going. So it became close community for however long people were staying. Yeah. Two, three days. Oh, I have one of the the better pictures that I took from uh, the first trip two years ago Mm -hmm. uh, was when Tony was leaving. Yeah. And we had, there was a Mm -hmm. a group of like 10 people. Yeah. Just a mom or men, Norman or Minnie are in there. And it's just, you could tell. I mean, the the hugs. Like going to summer camp. Yeah. You're there for 10 days and you're all hugs all around. It was beyond that. Yeah. It was. Well, I mean, equating it to something. And Tony was there, what, two months managing? Yeah. 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 And uh, Kavan and Ian mm-hmm. and uh, the hug that Kavan is giving Cat. You remember that picture? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's it's such a pure enjoyment of the other person. You know, it's just I'm glad I had the camera ready when that happened because mm-hmm. it's just it's there's nothing there's no okay let's take a little picture together. Right? <laughs> no, it's like oh my god, he's leaving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. yeah and we went through that like daily. Yeah, you yeah. know, and and that was what I liked about the community there. Yeah, and originally we had the. The community defined as that was the constitution thing that you're talking about yeah, yeah, of yeah. like, of, I don't know, like what it was supposed to be to live there. And, and three children, and, wasn't it? You had to sacrifice three of your children to the community. And a dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Um, but yeah, like have, it, it, that was the idea was like we have the Hoff and people would live all over the land and, yeah. and you know, we'd have this grand Smurf village. <laughs> and I quickly learned that that was not anything what I, that I wanted at all. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't like what it attracted yeah. as far as people went. Yeah, it made us recognize who we were as people running away. You know, it's like How do you mean? elaborate this. on that a little bit. Well, I think the favorite way that I we there was this Tibetan guru guy who came and did like a forty-eight hour workshop with us. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. Down at the weigh-in, he pointed out best. He's like you guys are a bunch of escapists. Like, what do you, you know, what are you doing here? And I like, couldn't agree more, that's you know? <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what it, I mean, I think you and I were talking about that a bit down there is like, that's, that's working abroad also. That whole notion of running away, kind of avoiding the problems in your own backyard to go solve somebody <clears throat> else's. Right. Go tend to this garden because while yours has weeds popping out and raccoons shitting on the cabbages and everything else, it's complete escapism. And we, we're, well, I mean, you see I it all to, over the place too, like the into the wild, the Chris McCandless, same idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not excusing myself from this in right. any way. I was completely guilty of it. I, I, I think part of me probably still wants to be. Yeah, to be honest with you, me too. It's, it's awesome to just like you know turn your back on all this. The sewage, you know, spewing out of the septic tank and go run around in somebody else's woods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. nice. It's a really nice thing to do. Yeah, I, I remember the uh, when you were building the the sustainable community. That was shortly after. It was like twenty eleven ish, early twenty twelve, before the Hoff. You were yeah. still you were still down uh, with the uh, the Ayahuascans. Um, that was when that was just <clears throat> starting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I I remember getting that, and I remember some of the conversations. We I think we may have exchanged a couple of emails. They weren't real deep. But I got a distinct feeling like this is a cult. This <laughs> yeah, is the beginning of like Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Oh, and I, I desperately wanted to go see it. Right. I started going to Mexico in 2011. So starting with 2012, every time I went to Latin America, I'm like, I want to get to the Hoff. Well, <laughs> I want to see this. You know what else I think is important to say, uh, to add on to that, though, is that at that point, we were 
waist deep in zombie apocalypse yeah. kind of yeah. philosophy. Well, as so are a lot of cultists. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but yeah. I, that's what I'm saying is like the community idea. Yeah. You, we weren't talking about zombie apocalypse or no, anything like that, it's but a metaphor. we were, yeah. we were wrapped up in it. Yeah. Like, like the, deeply, the oceans are going to, it was, it was all like climatological stuff, right? Like the earth, yeah. the oceans are going to rise. The earth is going to have a spastic sort of vomiting and it's going to wipe out most of the planet and mm-hmm. we're going to be know, okay up here. Well, and that was some of the, for some people up there, that was the philosophy for the local, vi- local vitalization. There was like some practical component to it mm-hmm. of like the villagers are our shock troops, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, right. like this sense of like, yes, let's do good work in the community so that we're in well with them mm-hmm. and all the hordes rushing up from Waraz, they won't be a part of the ones rushing up. They'll be rushing, they'll be right. defending their homes first rather than joining that horde to come up and wipe off the gringos. Yeah. We're going to sleep on their couch when a fucking house burns down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, all of that, for me, all of that went away pretty much right after 2012. After the uh, nothing happened? After, the, yeah, the, like the whole <laughs> December thing. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. it was like, yeah, it took like a month or two yeah. to kind of fully fade away. But it was it was pretty quick afterwards of like, yeah, all right. I was in Palenque. Well. <laughs> I was in Palenque that day. I was, uh, I was on my second tr- or third trip to Mexico at that point. Yeah. And I went down specifically because I wanted to spend the apocalypse 12, 21 to 12. I wanted to be somewhere near the uh, Mayan ruins. And because it's a Mayan prophecy, right? The end of the world. Right. And uh, they, they happened to, mm-hmm. the, the Rainbow family had the same idea. So mm-hmm. they held their global apocalypse rainbow gathering in the Palenque jungle, uh, probably just a few miles from the ruins. That sounds horrible. Uh, yeah. Fucking weird, uh, but wasn't so bad. I mean, it was okay. You know, they had sanitation issues. You know, they were shitting That's really close heard, to yeah. the 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 place where they were preparing food. And we went around, and we would, you know, we were there that night, just you know, before midnight. We're out wandering around, and there's drum circles going on, and people are just tripping out on something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but it was just weird. Yeah. And then the next morning rolls around, we get this big deluge. I mean, like a tropical storm rolled through that night. The next morning, it's just like Woodstock mud everywhere people are just soaked in and we're all here Mm -hmm. and it's funny how at that moment the conversation changed like there were a lot of people that took it literal like this is the end of the fucking world and the next morning when nothing happened the narrative changed Mm -hmm. oh it's a new era of enlightenment a new era of understanding what the fuck you were just saying eight hours ago that this is the end of the world now it's like it's just it's funny how uh after that happened it's almost like the preppers you know, right. that, or Y2K. Yeah, or waiting for Jesus to come back and rapture him or something like that. It doesn't yeah. happen. It's, oh, well, I, I mean, I've done them. I, I didn't carry my two. <laughs> right. You know, no, I just remember. It reminded me a lot of Y2K. Yeah. Where we bought 18 gallons of water yeah. in our apartment in Brooklyn. Although we, t- <laughs> we did that, and we took the whole thing. I don't know. We were excited about it. Yeah. I was 24 then or something, and yeah. we had an apartment right by the Brooklyn Bridge. We, My friend and I took great delight in planning out how to fortify the building that we were in. And, you know, the whole thing was supposed to happen at midnight. What did we do? We left. We went out. We partied. Fuck yeah. (laughs) Like in the middle of Manhattan. Yeah. Where we, uh, the whole time we'd been talking about it before, it was like, this would be the worst place. Manhattan, we don't definitely don't want to be in Manhattan. That would be the worst place. Can't get off. Right, yeah. (laughs) We're like, well, fuck it. Let's go out to the bar anyways. I was in a basement bar of uh, a blues club. I was working at the radio station in Kalamazoo then, and uh, 
I remember being there, drinking like a fish all night. I'm like, God, here comes midnight. If the power goes out, we're fucked. Right. And the, the, taps the world's won't good. work. Yeah, exactly. At 12 o'clock, the lights didn't even flicker. Right. The band, I mean, they did the countdown. The band started right back up and everything. I was like, well, well that's done. <laughs> you know, yeah, I guess yeah. I'll drink some more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even put another thought really into it, you know. But it, you're right. It's it, the, the Y2K thing. And, you know, whenever these uh, the religious folks, the fanatics, decide to say that this is the end of the world and this is when Jesus is coming back and the apocalypse is going to start, you know, it's all the same mentality. That uh, well, yeah, it's a, it's like a lack of responsibility, responsibility kind of wipe major change. Yeah, well, we that, talk, that you don't need to be accountable for. We talked a lot about this uh, back before the before the hitchhiking started. Mm. It, it, actually, shortly, I think probably through all that that whole summer in two thousand eight. Probably it was like huge on my mind. Yeah, it was. <laughs> like, do you think there's uh, bringing it back to the the way? And the the community you were building there. Do you think that there, if there was this apocalyptic component to it, do you think that uh, some of that was sort of people who were there trying to get involved with this, seeing themselves as the chosen ones, the evolved part of the species with enough foresight to save themselves? Therefore, they're the carrier of the human seed after the apocalypse. Well, I mean, we definitely had a different view of ourselves because. I mean, all of us had gotten there under weird circumstances, mm-hmm. you know, like me with my weird vision convulsing in Seattle, right? right? Yeah. Uh, Joey, we'll, Joey had... We'll his, get to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Joey had a similar thing. Yeah. Alex got there through dreams. Uh, Ryan showed up through similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. It was like, so yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> we all thought... I don't think we thought we were the chosen ones, or at least... How would you better characterize Some, it? Some might have, but... Um, how else would you characterize it? Because that's kind of how I see it. I, I, I see it that a lot of a lot of people, and I'm not I'm not going to point my finger at, at some specific group, but a lot mm. of a lot of folks that I've run into through, through the traveling stuff, and you get into this fringe culture, this alternative culture right, sort of yeah. thing, people that have with sort of withdrawn themselves from society, yeah. and are existing on the fringes yeah. and living by the seat of their pants, they see themselves oftentimes, not always, but right. oftentimes as a, a more highly evolved strain of the humanovirus that. They, they've somehow been touched by some concept of God and that they are the ones that are going to be going to survive when the, the earth decides to shake it off, shake the human yeah. species well, off like a case of fleas. All of us did see us as touched as some concept of God, as, as you put it. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I definitely still do. I mean, that was a weird experience to be convulsing and see Peru and the Andes and, and then arrive up there and suddenly feel at home. Um, you know, we can get into definitions of God and all that shit, no, I don't need but, to. um, but you know, going with that synchronicity, intuitive pull kind of thing, I, for me, I felt like I was there because I needed to be doing something there. Mm-hmm. And I still feel that. I think that's over. And I think now I need to be here. So you still feel like you should have been there doing something. I think I did do something there. No, I, I just, I, I didn't understand what you said. So you, you, you still feel like you were there for to, to, a purpose to yeah. do something at that point. Okay. Yeah, and I still feel that way. Mm-hmm. I think that purpose maybe ended like two years after when I got that <laughs> sense of like, okay, yeah. now you got to bring that home. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. now yeah, you yeah. need to go back to Springfield and I've been strongly resistant to that. So I feel like me coming back here is also, I'm here to be doing something. Building and, on what you did down there. Yeah, and I think... 
if you want to look at it in the sense of like divine direction or whatever, I look at it as kind of like the Joseph Campbell thing of like hearing the call and following mm -hmm. that call. Yeah. That's what I feel like I'm on mm -hmm. and that this is that call. Uh, this is where it's bringing me next. Well, there's a return. And it's, yeah, well, and the return yeah. is, you, we've talked a lot about that, is yeah. that I feel like that's the stage that I'm at. Sounds like, you know, I think that's the stage you feel like you're at. And Yeah. Yeah, and I think, well, you get that old argument of like, oh, so God is just like targeting you or, or this is just, you're here to specify, you know, yeah. to save the world universe, or whatever. Universe is your bitch. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think the, tweak that would say like yes by the sense that i'm supposed to fix myself you know what i mean and this this return is helpful for me it's helpful for those that i can work with right mm -hmm. so it's like yeah i'm not saving the world um i'm coming back i'm continuing to do my work by returning to my old community and address the shit that i ran away from mm -hmm. you know 25 years ago now yeah and that helps the world, you know, in a small way. There's local, one less fucked up on a guy local around. level. A local level is still part of the world. You yeah, know, it exactly. Still helps. It still and, radiates, and, and that's where I think it is all over. That sense of, I think the 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 grandeur comes in when you're like, I'm going to save the world all at once, you know. <laughs> but but I think, no, I think that that that's incredibly necessary. That everyone does their own, mm -hmm. like listening and work on themselves in that sense and and i don't know like that's where i attribute those like that convulsing because i felt mm -hmm. like for me personally to do something give a little background on that oh the convulsing thing yeah the sweat lodge right no it was um, a whaling ritual yeah that's i'm sorry yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah let's give a quick recap of what that uh what that was we can get it into into it more more in depth later but it's the second time we mentioned it so right okay so yeah my sister had broken up with her fiance and she asked me to to come over and 2010 right this was april 2010 okay. she had just broken up with a fiance she asked me to come be supportive she wanted to go to a whaling ritual to kind of which is whaling like crying sorrow mm -hmm. grief to kind of release your grief mm -hmm. a, a venue basically so you just hold space, everyone holds space for each other, but at the same time, they're doing whatever they need to do to get rid of whatever anguish they're dealing with. For her, it was a breakup. For someone else, it was uh, recognizing that they'd been molested. Another person had gone through an abortion. Uh, several other people, including myself, were just there for support. Mm -hmm. I enjoy sacred space. My mm -hmm. sister enjoys sacred space. We like doing that together. So I was happy to join. I mean, we've mentioned ayahuasca and stuff like mm -hmm. that. This was not a uh, anything, uh, any kind of ceremony where we took anything, it was just kind of holding energy for each other. Mm -hmm. So I processed a bunch of just memories. I had these memories come back that I kind of like got out of me. I could like feel a, a ball of kind of negative energy mm -hmm. outside of me. And, uh, I laid out on the floor and felt it just kind of like fly off. And as soon as it did, I started convulsing from my solar plexus and was seeing in my mind's eye uh, like the Andean mountains and the words Peru and Machu Picchu or Peru and Lima hmm. uh, just slamming into my face for about 20 minutes. That was basically the catalyst to why I wanted to go to Peru. This is just such an intense feeling and vision and, you know, like 
I mean, I don't even know why I was convulsing. It was April, of course, so I had just gotten my tax returns back. So I had like $1,500, which is an amazing amount of money to someone who's hitching around. Oh, yeah. And I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to go to Lima tomorrow. Mm, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And that felt immediately wrong. Again, strong internal sense of, of no, I needed to go overland. And so, yeah, so it took me about an, a year and a half to get down there. I ended up flying into Quito in Ecuador. How much money did you leave with? $350, and I had an ounce of gold sewn into my belt loop. And that was my ATM. Because <laughs> I didn't trust the so banks. You, so you bought a one-way ticket to, to, to Quito? Yeah. With $350, an ounce of gold, and yeah, in 10 no ounce coins. fucking so. idea what you were doing. Yeah. I knew I was going to Lima. Yeah. And I knew... From Quito. From Quito, That's yeah. Ecuador. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> it's not exactly... Yeah, no, and, and I, yeah, I flew into Quito because, again, it's I had cheap, the sense right? I needed to go... Yeah, there's a cheap ticket, yeah. and I also felt the sense I needed to go overland mm. to Lima. So, I don't know, let's give out Central America and go overland yeah, <laughs> right. from yeah, Ecuador. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently that was fine mm. with whoever. And... <laughs> you. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, so part of the thing was... Um, being in the hostels in Quito, that, that's what I did. As I landed, I had no idea where I was, so I just vol- started volunteering at a hostel and met a bunch of people and kind of learned how the Gringo Trail works and all that. Hmm. Yeah, so I met a bunch of people who, you know, nature of the hostel coming and going. And then when I finally left, I ran into two friends of mine down in Cuenca, uh, which is in southern Ecuador, ended up telling that convulsing story to this other guy, Swedish guy, and was kind of, I always told it, in this way of like, I'm not crazy. This is what happened, <laughs> you know, and this is why I'm here. When I finished, he said, oh, yeah, I can appreciate you being really hesitant about sharing that because had I met you two weeks ago and heard that, I would have thought you were crazy. Mm-hmm. But I just met a guy in this lodge up in the Cordillera Blanca that um, I think you should meet because he has a very similar story, and that ended up being my friend Joey. Mm-hmm. Um, he had gotten there a month earlier. Cordillera Blanca had come up a couple, uh, several times Weirdly, like just people saying like, oh, yeah, you really need to go there. Mm-hmm. That was why I just from Cuenca, I just beelined it. I didn't see anything else, really. Mm-hmm. One stop over in the beach just because I had a 12-hour layover in that town. Right. Got into Juarez, walked up the mountain, saw the mountains. It wasn't the same view that I saw in my head, I don't think. Well, I know it wasn't, but... Were you supposed to be up the road like 10 miles? That would suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was supposed to be a young guy. Yeah. <laughs> but um no, but I got up there and I just saw I saw the mountains and I, I was at the inn and just felt like immediately at home, which mm-hmm. is not a sensation I get if you got that impression from all the moves that I've made. Yeah. So, yeah, so the fact that I even felt at home, that was a large reason to stay. Yeah. To go back to your question of mm-hmm. why would you stay with this sense of community? No, I get the, I, I get the the aspect of being at home and feeling at home at the way in, right. and with um, the uh, the intentional community planning and all that. I yeah. that that part I understand. Mm-hmm. I, I think more my question was directed at after you moved up to the Hoff, right, and started working, you know, with the community. That was odd to me that you would kind of see yourself as staying there. Right, for the yeah. rest of your life without being integrated fully and accepted into the community that was already there. Yeah, and then it was weird. So with that background of like, oh, I had this weird vision thing, convulsing and everything in a ceremony, and then, you know, go and find this place where suddenly mm-hmm. I feel at home, and then that everyone that I met who came afterwards mm-hmm. had gotten there in a similar way Yeah, was very reinforcing 
of yeah. this idea that I should be there. Yeah. The one question I think I wanted to ask you, do you feel deceived at all? Do you feel like they no. sort of uh, made you feel like you were a bigger part of it than you really were? No. I think I made myself feel like I was a bigger part of it than I was. It's a great answer. Yeah. And I think I knew that I was doing that too. Really? In a sense. I think not in, maybe not in a way that I would fully acknowledge, but in some Subconsciously? Sense. Yeah. And not even fully subconsciously either. I think there was, there was a lot of times I was questioning uh, our place there. What were we doing there? I mean, that's... I. Th- I attributed that to a lot of why the work that we were doing was good work was that we were questioning our place there, that we weren't just assuming, well, we've been here for a long time. We must be part of the community now. Mm -hmm. You know, we were constantly recognizing ourselves as foreigners, constantly recognizing that we were outsiders. We went through a lot of different stages of trying to define what is our role in the community Mm -hmm. long before the robbery or last year, even uh, we kind of, defined ourselves as we are a resource that's our role why are we trying to grow food here when we're living in a community of generational farmers right so why are we trying to be self-sustaining <laughs> right you know why are we from tra- them. Yeah. yeah exactly i mean we're isolating ourselves yeah. by growing our own food there right right um we're intentionally making ourselves an island if we decide we're gonna be entirely self-containing it's just a lightning bolt of a thought here. Is there a bigger uh, application to that, that sure. idea? I mean, here. Yeah, sure. As far Absolutely. as the, the organic self-sustained community here. That idea first struck me when I was living in Denver back in 2005 or six. Remember that funky apartment that I had with the fireplace? Vaguely. Yeah. So um, I remember having that idea there, but when I was thinking, I, I don't know, I had a thought I wanted to learn how to cut my own hair. Right. Because I was like, oh, I want to learn how to do more things on my own. Right. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized I'm going to be sure I can take care of myself better. But then I'm not not contributing financially. Yeah, I'm not at connecting least. with people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I wasn't paying anybody to cut my hair back then anyways. I was having friends do it. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of fun having friends do it. You know, like Melanie, she cut my hair. Yeah, but I, I guess I'm looking for a, a parallel to not buying food from the local farmers in Peru. That's a the financial connectivity. Thing. Yeah, but there's also a financial aspect. But there's that. also a social aspect to it. Mm-hmm. You know, marketplace is one of the oldest social places that you can have, right? right. When I was right, managing right. the okay. grocery delivery back in Seattle, yeah. that was a constant conversation that I was having with the purchaser there. It's true, yeah. Was, are we taking <laughs> away one of the oldest socializing methods that is known to humanity by delivering it to their front door. And I had a real problem with that. And he did too. And he was a really good devil's advocate because he was trying to convince himself as well. But he agreed with me that, you know, he would say, well, you know, we're a big help. And I would agree with him. Yeah, we're a big help to the handicapped. We're a big help to to the single moms who don't have Mm -hmm. the time to go out and, and get more food. But half, if not more, of our clients were wealthy people in gated communities. Outside of uh, my girlfriend, the best conversations, aside from this one, obviously, that I've had, I'm not, I'm not, this is not hyperbolic. I mean this. The best conversations that I've had outside of you and her in the last two weeks have been a guitar center. Nice. When I was trying to get the equipment together, once I decided to really throw myself into this. And I was having a conversation, joking around, yeah, about products. Yeah. But actually, 
having interaction, like it's joking interaction, a human interaction with the salespeople because I had to go in and I had to learn something. Well, and that's what pisses me off about like when going to Friendly's last night and when you got a computer screen to order. Yeah, them, right. Or you want to order something on Amazon and now they want to fly it to you with a drone so you don't even meet the delivery guy. <laughs> there you go. I did talk to the FedEx guy when he dropped my arm off yesterday. <laughs> that for me? Yeah. Okay. Is it his signature? No. Okay. Thanks. There you go. Yeah. That yeah. Was... That's that's the future. Yeah. I mean, that's it's it's here. Well, the future is that guy you... goes away too. The problem is, is even when I went to uh, Guitar Center, mm-hmm. I was looking at this equipment. Mm-hmm. They don't have most of their stock in store. All right. They want you to order online. They send you home to get it through the computer. Yeah, because it's cheaper to buy a warehouse that yeah. you can tuck away in some unknown store, you know, unknown corner of the world that you can ship everything out of rather than try and get the real estate that's location, location, location. So somebody, right. you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. more and more things are moving towards more delivery online. More disconnection. Which is more just, dis- yeah, I mean, I remember 10, 15 years ago thinking, shit, even at that point, I could live my life on a toilet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I could sit on a toilet do a job online, get a paycheck through that that's delivered online. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could have my food delivered to me. I could just shit in the toilet that I'm sitting on mm-hmm. and pay my sewage bill or pay my water bill online. And I, if, if you keep your toilet relatively clean. Doesn't matter. No if one's you drop, see me anyway. No, but if you, yeah, <laughs> but if you drop your feces into the water, right. try to urinate into the water, mm-hmm. flush often, you could actually sort of perform some sense of personal hygiene on the toilet. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you don't need to go anywhere. You're laughing. I told you that story about the plugged up toilet in Mexico. Don't laugh. <laughs> we'll leave that alone. Right. But you're right. I don't know that I've ever really... I thought about that too much, but it, you know, it's like going to REI. We, we take our little REI trips, right? You would sit there and you would have a conversation about gear, even if it's just, you know, talking about backpacks or boots. Right. And you'd learn shit you didn't even know you needed to learn. Or teach them. You or know, teach of, them. Yeah. Because or find out some cool place to go. Yeah. Or I'm not, something. I'm not saying that facetiously. I mean, a lot of times because I've used so many backpacks and boots, I mm-hmm. could actually help the clerk out. Right. With, okay, these do this and these are, this is awesome for this and this sucks for, I mean, it was an exchange of information. Right. It's, I, I think that may be a, another contributing, a large contributing factor to that. That's uh, disconnect. Artificial sort of world in which we kind of see ourselves in now. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of that, it all contributes to the disconnect that we're talking about. Yeah. And this lack of, you know, Community is a funny word when you're going to refer it to the Walmart checkout guy, but still, it is. it's still there. It's part you of it. see that yeah. person every day. Maybe we're using the wrong word. Maybe community, it creates an image in the head. You mm-hmm. know, it creates a picture in your mind. I don't know. My impression that that comes out of like the word community is, again, back to what we originally started talking about. Everything's being politicized. You start talking about community, you're liberal already. No, oh, yeah, yeah. Barack Obama <laughs> was a community organizer, yeah, which means that's fucking socialism. communist. Oh, he's a commie. Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. Everything is politicized now. So, so even uh, if you to, want to talk about community with a conservative, you say family. If you want to talk about church, community, you say church. But if you say either of those things to liberals, instead of saying church or family, you say community. Yeah. Wow. You know what I mean? That's really weird. 
It's just language. No, it's not because I I, I disagree. I, I will take a, a slight exception there because if you were to say the the word or imply the idea of community to a lot of conservatives, especially the the doctrinal conservatives, mm-hmm. they will start touting individualism, okay, which is yeah. sort of the antithesis, right, to a degree, of community, right, where everybody depends on one another and helps one another out, where the rugged individual. Right, the you know, survivalist. Yeah, lives up on the mountain, goes out and shoots his bears and drives his pickup truck till he has to go get the fucking transmission fixed and needs somebody. If he's real conservative, he can fix it himself. <laughs> yeah? No, but I mean, that brings it back to the Hoff. Uh, that community versus individualism of like, mm-hmm. you know, do we want to be 100% self-sustaining? No, that's not our goal anymore. We want to be a part of the community. Right. And to be a part of the community, you have to interact with them, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't just interact on your own whims. But of you like, can't. We're going to we're going to go down there and be part now. And but if you're part of that ecosystem, mm-hmm. right, but you could never really get there. Not really. You can be part of the ecosystem. You can just not be welcome. Viruses are part of an ecosystem, too. Yeah. And that's what they we serve. Were. They serve a purpose. Yeah. I mean, we, we had no delusions that we were a resource. We just thought we could be part of Worked. the community as a resource. We knew we were a resource, and that doesn't bother us. I mean, the milk guy's a resource also. We thought, we know how to generate money, Mm -hmm. right? We can bring in money from other continents. Yeah. So why don't we make that our role, where we'll bring in our money from the hostel, you know, serving Germans and Americans and whoever else, you know, then funnel that money back out into the local community by buying their produce, by buying their milk, you know, we never got to the produce side because we could never organize that. Right. But that was the direction we've been heading in. It was like push that money back out. Or, I mean, mostly what we were using that money for was building either infrastructure either for us or, you know, for the school, doing projects at the school, things like that. That was our way of being part of the community. Right. It's kind of like the old 50s, like rich guy on the hill kind of thing. That's what we were. We knew that. Yeah. But we took that as that's our role in the community. Yeah. Um, When really, uh, I I don't know, I guess my, I guess the shift to go back to that question of where I started to where I ended, Mm -hmm. the shift would be, I thought we could be accepted in the, in the sense of like having friends. Yeah. Right. Norma, Armenia, Anna, all these people, Emiliano. Yeah. yeah. And we did have friends. We still got Americo. Yeah, yeah Americo. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't, we would never, you can be friends, but you can't be part of the community. Right. Yeah. So what do you think uh, as far as where you sit right now? And I know this is a really unfair question. What's the big lesson of the last six years? Um... I mean, you're only two weeks. That I out. took away. Yeah, this is this is probably going to change as time goes on. You're two oh, weeks, sure two will. weeks separated, but as things sit right now, yeah, it's still I mean, fresh. At risk of saying it sounds like I regret it, which I definitely don't. Mm-hmm. I think it was a valuable learning experience. I think the lesson is to keep my work at home, and um, which I want to I want to say what I'm thinking exactly because. I do still want to keep up efforts in Peru, right? I'm still interested in that. Mm-hmm. I think at this point, what I see this move as is not as a close down. You know, I've got... It's a relocation, isn't it? Uh, no, and this is what I'm... This is how I've been 
phrasing it to the partners, to myself, mm. to how I've, this has been my perspective that I've been taking on it is mm. it's an expansion, right? I'm moving up here. I'm doing the same work up here. I want the work to continue down in Peru. Oh, I gotcha. Um, look at it in a CEO sort of way. I'm the executive director of the, of the organization, mm-hmm. right? So I'm delegating. Mm-hmm. Now I have another office. I'm up here, right? I'm, I'm where I need, I belong, right? So, I need to be. This is where I grew up, where I know yeah. the culture the most fluently. It wouldn't make sense for Julia to be here you over can do the, me. You can do the most good here. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I want to continue doing good, doing the work down in Peru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but now I have Diogenes and Geronimo, who are the two that I'm renting to the hostel. I still right. have my connections with Ana, who was managing local projects for us. I still have Americo, who can run stuff. Can we call them Los Hermanos? Los Hermanos? Yeah. Isn't yeah, that sure. like a Breaking Bad thing? What, yeah. was, the, what was the chicken I joint? I never saw Breaking Bad. Yeah, there was a chicken joint, I think, that one of the uh, the cartel leader in uh, Albuquerque, I think it was called Los Hermanos. Oh, really? Yeah, I would like to call them Los Hermanos from now on. This is my thing. It's what I do. Yeah, you can call them whatever you want. <laughs> Either way, I have them down there. You know, they're renting from me. They're, uh, Diogenes, at least, is interested in the, in the work and the projects. Ana knows it. Emiliano, yeah. he's still involved. We're, st- I mean, we're still having a homestay next month. Astrid, uh, right? Astrid, she's mm-hmm. going to be there until May. You know, working with the schools, so we're still down there. We're still doing stuff. Um, I'm just not down there. Julia, she wants to do the same thing in England. So you know, she's got land over there through her. Well, boyfriend. this isn't. Let's you know understand too. Uh, and this is more for not for you. This is for the listeners. I mean, you're not a, exactly like a fucking unicorn here. A lot of people like James. Mm-hmm. He's got a similar. He had a similar thing going on. He's a guy that we met in Mexico in 2011 and took the uh, VW Combi around the Yucatan with right. him and his uh, girlfriend at the time, right. who was Estonian. He's British. They built something similar to what. At least down the down the same lines as you were doing in the Andes Mountains, they when, did in the forests of northern Estonia, I do believe. Yeah, when I went and visited them, Kat and I both agreed this was like the Hoff in the Woods. Yeah, it yeah. was it was really cool. And and, and they started the Push, which is you know a great network, the like the natural building version of Wolf. Yeah, you know, and and it it took off. Got I thought it. it was really cool that you know a lot of people coming through my hostel were recommending that I get on Push. Yeah, I was like, oh, James. I'm already on there. That's my friend James. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was uh, he he was underwritten, and maybe it's another example of how the the European culture is maybe a little bit more. I don't want to use the word evolved, but they actually under, progressive. They they uh, underwrote him. I do yeah. believe. I think he got he a got grant money grant from, from them. them. Yeah. And that yeah. was from campaigning around the UK of all places. Yeah, you know, it's neat because it. You know, I, I don't really think we've ever I've really ever talked about this sort of model or this idea or construct, I guess, beyond you. But it's not something that's just happening on this one well, mountain. You and I haven't talked about it. Uh, I have always like looked at it as clicking into these other mm-hmm. networking yeah. and partnering is a major part of of what we're doing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, mean I wouldn't be able to do any you know, a lot of the stuff that I've been doing without the partnerships of universities. And then, you know, I've connected with other other people around like Bill Park down in uh, Iquitos yeah. and all of his stuff. Like we're talking about doing an intensive permaculture course for two months. Yeah, for the geographically challenged, Iquitos is a, a major city. It's like isolated <laughs> to a jungle. Get bigger than I thought it was. We just mm-hmm. went there. Uh, we'll talk about the, the trip we just took probably in the next episode. But yeah. it's an isolated metropolis, basically. No roads in or out, just an airport and the Amazon River in the middle of the jungle. Right. And he's, uh, Bill's, what's he doing? He's uh, working with indigenous jungle tribes. 
highly isolated jungle tribes. Right. And uh, using their sort of medicinal concoctions, bottling it and selling it. Yeah, and he's also working with local villagers uh, in the area that he lives, helping them with growing with biodynamic principles, permaculture mm-hmm. principles. And then in, in that, each family that he works with, he ensures that they're growing in abundance for their family so that they're mm-hmm. eating out of their own farms, yeah. which is a huge novelty, surprisingly. Yeah. And, um, and then on top of that, growing a cash crop that he can then sell to a U.S. market yeah. and feed that profit back to them. He takes the brokerage fee, and that's how it all works sustainably. Do you know, does he have a website? Yeah, ecoola.org. Spell it. Maybe it's com. Maybe dot com. E-C-O-H-O-L-A? No, E-C-O hyphen... O-L-A, I think, okay. dot com. Dot com or dot org, one of the two. Yeah, I think Yeah, go check com. it out. He's, uh, he's. I only spent a couple hours hanging out with, Chris and uh, Bill had a uh, sort of a business meeting at a bar, and I sat there drinking beer. But he's he's a really interesting cat, and uh, we had a conversation, uh, mm. he and I did, about me uh, taking the camera gear. I, I shot a, a documentary of Chris's place, that first trip down there two years ago. That's it, uh, upperworldphoto.com. If you want to see pictures of the Hoff and the place we've been talking about, but we also I also had a, a little exchange with Bill before <laughs> life went all tornadic on me in January <laughs> about going down and taking the camera gear down to his uh, see what he's got going on in the Amazon. So we that's still on the table. Right. I, you know I haven't completely just have to get the fucking tsunami has to subside at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and another thing uh, about the Kawimanti stuff, yeah, is we're still doing the Live and Change course this year. Right, you're doing it at, so at, that's the, in at the end, right? Huh? You're yeah, pre- we're doing it at the way in. Yeah. Yeah. What's your, uh, the Kawamante? Dot org. Spell it there. Oh, uh, yeah. K-A-W-A-Y-M-O-N-T-I dot org. Ka. Ka. Way. Monte. M-O-N-T-I. Ka. Mm-hmm. Way. M-O-N-T-I. Yep. Dot org. Yep. Dot org, yeah. It's also on Facebook still. You got the Facebook page up there. All of it, yeah. It's interesting stuff. Yeah, and the hops reopening soon, too, with the brothers. Yeah. Los hermanos. Los hermanos. Yeah. With Los Gatos, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad Schumacher's not dead. I know. Schumacher chief. I thought they had been fox eaten. Yeah, Schumacher vanished for a couple. I was pissed off. I was like, God damn it. Chief vanished, just took off for like the last week or two. Chief will kill that fucking fox. Yeah. Uh, She is the most refined hunter I think I've ever seen. (laughs) Jesus Christ. You got to be to live up there, right? Yeah. Anything else we need to touch on? Anything we missed today? I think we're good. And I yeah. think I need to pee again. Yeah, me too. One other question. Mm-hmm. Just to put a bow tie on this, and I'll I'll let you leave the room and I'll do my little wrap up. But right. I asked you what what the, what the big lesson you took out of this was, and you and uh, paraphrasing, do it at home, stay home, take care of your backyard. Is that accurate? Yeah, I guess I don't know that I would say stay home. I think the the work is at home. I don't think it's bad. I think it's good to get out. No, no, no. Yeah, and, yeah. And get Thank out, you for travel, that. see, yeah. you know, like yeah. I think, and that's why I want to specify, like, I like the work that I did in Peru. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, I, I don't want to like support this idea of like, you know what? Fuck all the other countries. Mm-hmm. Let's just fix our shit. But at the same time, I think it helps a lot to fix up your own place. Uh, and, and it's the most effective place that you can be. You know, like for me, I know this culture, I know yeah. the language, I know the people here, I have a network here, yeah. and I haven't even been here in 25 years. Yeah. You know, I just, I can be far more effective here because I know the nuances of, of what's wrong. I know this society 
right. intimately yeah. because I grew up here. Yeah, you know how to work the at right. least some of the bureaucracy and the, the customs and right. the, the processes and the regulations and whatever else. But I can say that working in Peru has helped me, I think will be a significant asset for me well to do my to do work here. Mm-hmm. And I think doing work here is really important. I mean, a lot of people like talking about the escapist thing again, it's like a lot of people just want to bolt and go somewhere else and then go help people or whatever. But I think if you really want to be, I think the U S is a major world problem in the sense of we create a lot of, there's, there's a lot of problems that radiate out, I think from American influence. We're the biggest boulder being dropped in the ocean. We're going to make the biggest waves. Exactly. And so with positive influence here, that positive influence has a greater radiation. Again. Then if I'm, if I'm working in Peru and my objective is to help the villagers, right? Mm-hmm. That's like if I'm looking at a polluted river and I'm cleaning up the very end of it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm looking at a polluted river and I want to clean it up, I want to go to the headwaters of the river and start cleaning from there. If I'm familiar with one part of a higher up part that's doing, that's affecting things more and I can more intimately affect that change, possibly. Let's take a quick break because that just triggered like four more questions that I want to throw in. All right. Uh, All right. I'm going to pee then. Sit tight. <laughs> All right. Oh no! All right, so we're back. Uh, how was your pee? Good. It was, mine was fantastic. It was relieving. Oh, uh, I almost didn't make it. He went first, being the guest, and me being the gracious host that I am. Like Chris, I have the toilet first, and I almost uh, pissed my flannel. So anyway, okay. one final question: uh, Your experience in Peru? Yeah. Has uh, how do you uh, how do you think that's affected your perspective of the U.S.? Uh, it's. It's definitely affected it. <laughs> yeah. In a variety of different ways. Like mm-hmm. um, a lot of which was positive. Like I have a lot more appreciation. One for like I talk a lot of shit about the police force. Mm-hmm. But it's effective here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have um, a greater appreciation for the kind of security infrastructure that we have here. And yeah. the kind of, well, in general infrastructure that we have here. I mean, just moving trying to find fucking boxes (laughs) held me up for a week in in Juarez, you know, um, organizing a truck to get things down to Lima. I'm still working on that. So our infrastructure here is great. It gives me a great value for, for what we've built and done. And, and before there was a lot of things that I think get complained about, Mm -hmm. I think, who was it? I was talking to somebody the other day, where they jumped right into this whole, like, I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm moving back home. And there there was almost this condolence to it <laughs> of like, oh, yeah, America sucks or whatever. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, it was when it dawned on me of like, kind of everywhere sucks. Yeah. Just in a variety of different ways, mm, you right, know, yeah. and in other ways, everywhere is great in a variety of different ways it's i'm familiar with the corruption here you Mm -hmm. know i'm familiar with the like problems the social problems here Mm -hmm. i'm very used to them i'm also a white dude 
in America and right. rather than a gringo in South America, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, my experience here is much more positive than, <laughs> yeah. than it is with social interactions down there. I'm I'm not an intrigue anymore, which was fun in the beginning and mm-hmm. kind of annoying towards the end. Yeah, I just... Uh, you were pretty eager to get out of there. Yeah. I was desperate to get out of Peru. And in that last month, I think I just saw a lot more of 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 this disappointment, this needy grabbing society that hadn't really reared its face so thoroughly mm-hmm. uh, to me before. And, and I'm, you know, that's been the biggest relief getting back to the States is, um, is getting away from that. Yeah. Which I think is still here in parts, but I'm just not living in those parts and I'm not looking to be in those parts. Well, we've hitchhiked all over the country. Yeah, I mean, we've and, been through uh, those kinds of places. Just about everywhere. We're going to Maine this week, by the way. Did I did I mention that to you? I'm going to get no. that fucking thing off the off the fucking. I'm going <laughs> to. I intend. I told Shalane, not really a tangent coming right back, but mm-hmm. Maine's the only spot on the map in, in the lower 48 that I have not been. I've aimed for it four fucking times, maybe five. <laughs> Ended up in Boise once. Long story, but I'm going to go. We're going to get in the car. We're going to drive up there. We're going to get out of the car. Right. I'm going to walk up to the sign. I'm going to flip it off. Just mm-hmm. like this. And I'm going to step over the line. I'm going to take a leak. I'm going to just put a little check mark next to Maine, and that's going to be that. You know Maine's east of here. You went to Boise. Yeah. I <laughs> fucking fully understand that. <laughs> yeah, I do understand that. I'm just saying. Yeah. Where did I start? I started in, yeah, anyway. <clears throat> so anyway, we're going to do that. But yeah. uh, I, I wonder. So, I, yeah, I mean, to wrap that up, there's a greater appreciation, but there's also a greater appreciation of elsewhere as well. What do you mean elsewhere? Well, like having lived in Peru, mm-hmm. there's a lot of great things about that I really liked about being there. Like things I'm not looking forward to coming back here is regulations, regulations yeah. red tape, you know? Yeah. I yeah. get why it's there. Yeah. I just don't like it. Talking about cleaning up the headwaters rather than the tail end of the, of the river. Mm-hmm. How much can be done to solve the vast number of problems that are afflicting. Unless it's just using that one country. To how much can it? be? How much? Yeah, I mean, you're talking <laughs> about cleaning the headwaters, right? So how much can be done from here to solve their problems? If, if, if you gave me the impression anyway that mm. you, you that you were sort of implying that most of their problems come from here. Mm. I don't know. That's such a complicated yeah. <laughs> way of phrasing that. I think. I mean. You going back into colonialism and to like CIA influence, there's that kind of stuff. Then there's their own bullshit that they got going yeah. on. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, we weren't the colonists in South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got Spain for that one. You got uh, I don't know. The world's the world. Yeah, I mean, we could we could fix our country. Okay, we could do everything we can do here. Right. I, and how much of it still, though, lies in the lap in the hands of the Peruvians themselves to actually take care of, you know, we're not causing police corruption. Well, everywhere needs to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think we've, what's going on down, so like across the valley from us, there's a Canadian mine, gold mine. Right. Um, that's fucking a lot of things up. Mm-hmm. Um, the the mining industry in general all over Peru is all foreign. Yeah, it's all either that's English. That's an old story down there, man. Yeah, th- That's yeah. what I'm saying. But yeah. because of the age of that story, <clears throat> it's that's done significant cultural damage over there um, that radiates out through through the people. Yeah, I mean, that needs to fix itself. Mm-hmm. But 
there's continued influence coming from abroad that is seriously affecting. I mean, the fucking president in Peru is American right now. The first lady's from Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. there's a lot of foreign influence are affecting the, elections, the place. Are the elections rigged? Uh, I don't know. No, I, don't, I don't know well enough on any I mean, of that yeah, stuff. He, I don't think so, but yeah. I don't know. It's not like he was, you know, installed. It doesn't they do have elections down there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they have they have elections, and that was a tight election. Um, mm-hmm. And it was between that guy, PPK, and mm-hmm. um, uh, Keiko. Keiko, yeah. Who's like Fujimori's daughter. Fujimori is a Japanese known for... Well, he's... No, he's Peruvian, but he's descended from, yeah, Japanese yeah. parents or grandparents. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, he was also tied in with the CIA corruption scandal. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and... and Kaiko's whole thing was, you know, she's going to let him out of house arrest. <laughs> you know, I mean, so yeah. there's, that's what I mean in the sense of like, there's foreign pressure being, being pushed on a lot of these African countries, South American countries, yeah. Asian countries. And if you release that pressure, they're still going to be fucked up. Yeah. It's like you get an abused kid out of their home that they grew up in. They're still fucked up, you know, and they're still going to go wreak their own havoc. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think, yeah, I don't think you're. No, gonna I don't expect you to give anything. me a political science answer here. I just no, I, we, no, but yeah. that's what I meant. No, yeah. I'm just explaining like what I meant by I think if we can improve our country, mm-hmm. there's also a likelihood that our country, I think, ingrained in part of the culture, is a generosity as well. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. a large part of the of the culture that's that's part of it. That's you know, where Peace Corps comes from. Yeah, the, I mean. Theoretically, either that or it came from the CIA. I'm not sure. But jeez, <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know what I mean. It's yeah. there. There is a generous spirit in this country, and that's one of the things that I love about being here. Is yeah. you know, walking cross country that was yeah. a huge renewed faith, and and hitching was a, a huge renewed faith in humanity. Let's put a bow on it there. That's that's the other aspect of this is that. Uh, prior to Chris going down to mm-hmm. you going down to Peru, uh, we had an entire uh, Odyssey. <laughs> Jesus Christ, up here. And uh, he and I both did a lot of hitchhiking up here. And I think that's one of the common themes. And it's um, is that I remember when I left in 2008, I kept asking, where are all these assholes? Where are all these people trying to kill me? Where are all these people trying to run me off the side of the road? And what I ran into 99.9% of the time was people offering me rides, not only offering me rides, mm-hmm. giving me food, giving me water, trying to buy me McDonald's, trying to give me money. And sitting down and actually have asking legitimately interested questions and what are you doing why are you doing this and it just was a common thing i even think it's fair to say that uh where the likelihood of receiving that generosity was a little higher is in what today would be trump country absolutely i've yeah. said that a hundred times yeah i didn't have a lot of priuses stopping to pick me up right <laughs> i can tell you i found a lot of pickup trucks right but, I mean, one thing that I did hear a lot in talking anytime we got into politics uh, on a ride was the government was definitely at fault, whether it right. was Obama ripping the world apart or the Republican government ripping the world apart. Yeah. It was the same story. Well, we were at our height of this in 2009, and that was after shortly after Obama was elected. It was around the time the Tea Party was starting to bubble forth out of the swamp. Right. And that was a common, a big thing was that every time, almost every, not every time, I'm not going to say that, but probably half of the time that I got into a car, 
one of the first things that was coming out of people's mouths was they were just pissed off at the government. Yep. They didn't care if it was Republican. They didn't care if it was a Democrat. They just saw and felt that everything was busted right. and needed to be fixed. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, we, we saw this coming. We saw this whole Trump mm-hmm. thing a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't know it would be the orange baboon <laughs> by any stretch. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there were indications of this. As, oh, as easily. Far back but as 08 I, I would concede that I only have seen them in hindsight. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it was clear to see. Yeah. At the time, you were. I was on. Five, it. You, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you had the foresight. I had the hindsight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all right either way. But yeah, it's. Uh, I, I, I guess I just want to foreshadow a little bit of this because, uh, and and sort of tease the uh, the next episode. We're obviously going to do at least one more of these, and probably maybe more if we can keep mm-hmm. the voices intact for the next few days. It's um, an interesting thing because. You know, I, I came up with this thing called a tale of two voices. I referred to it a couple of times on the, on the podcast, and I've kind of been hinting and teasing it a little bit, uh, that when I'm here and sort of involved, and, and my, my window to the world is primarily that, being the Internet, mm-hmm. I have a complete, you, you, you called it cave thinking once upon a time when I was living back in 2008, I think. It was like, you change when you get home. You get this cave thinking. You get all negative <laughs> and shit. Rah, 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 rah. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck you, man. And, but you were right. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is because my perception and my reaction to the world is coming through this electronic interface, right. you know, and I'm only seeing basically negative shit, what I'm kind of obsessed with at the moment, right? At right. any particular moment. Well, and you get locked in the house. Right, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's you get me your out. only window. Right, you get me out and start hitchhiking, mm-hmm. and you get plugged into the organic world, and you start having these human synaptic interactions, be it Latin America, be it particularly here. That changes to a, a, a really, really huge degree, and I, I really want to get into next time, not, not today, obviously, but I really want to get into that because the people out there, and that's where the, that sausage party kernel of hope it really is going to lie because you've got to be able to sit down and you've got to be able to, to, to deal with people personally right. and, and, and the de- you know the dehumanization, as I've called it over time. You know, mm. You're only dealing with people on an electronic level and only seeing certain aspects. If you can get out and talk to each other, that's where it starts, I think. And yeah, I firmly believe that. Yeah, and I mean, I mean personally. People looking to people, at you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's like what we talked about, the idea on the land and... Yeah, things here. We'll get into project that. here. We'll get into that. There's a, that's a great idea. That's, that's ambitious, but at least the stuff we were talking about with the gun range. These. <laughs> <laughs> There's new ideas on yeah. that now too. On that note, let's. Uh, we're gonna wrap this up. My uh, my friend Chris Dyson, the Friar. That's who we've been talking with the last couple of hours. You listen to the Escaping the Cave podcast, the Toddzilla X Pod. I'm on Google Play. I'm also on uh, iTunes. And you can get me over at the other Chris's place, ChristopherMedia.net. So yeah. We'll talk to you next time, and uh, Chris will be back in here. Till then, so long. Mm-hmm.